tried to go for a kind of local news violence. Even in the murders themselves, it's like you pick up the newspaper and there's a co-ed, someone who's got a smiling face, usually a graduation photo. Underneath you find out that that person was killed at 2 a.m. on such and such a corner, and the feeling that that gives you is, when you read about the crime juxtaposed against the image, it gives you an emotional connection. Because that person had people who loved them. That person had a life that was taken. I wanted to keep that in mind throughout. The emotion. To me, what's violent, and of course the actual acts are violent, but it's the fallout that really is violent. It's the emotion that's connected to it. It's the way it affects the other people. It's the fear that gets struck in someone. It's the violation of humanity that's important. So it's important for a storyteller to establish that humanity if you're going to take it away. Carl Franklin, director of One False Move, 2018. genre, a film podcast where we explore new perspectives on black genre cinema and discuss alternative narratives in genre film through a black lens. My name is Graham Cumberbatch and this is episode four. It is also the talk back for week four of our four-part virtual film series hosted by Hyper Real Film Club out of Austin, Texas. All July we invite viewers and listeners to watch along with us as we focus on a different black film and a different genre of cinema each week and discuss the film's impact and the contributions of black filmmakers to that genre. At the end of each week, we'll be airing a new episode of the Black is Not a Genre podcast featuring a great lineup of special guests. For week four, we're discussing thrillers and a double feature by director Carl Franklin, including his 1992 debut film, One False Move, starring Cinda Williams, Michael Beach, Billy Bob Thornton, and Bill Paxton, and his sophomore effort, 1995's Devil in a Blue Dress, starring Denzel Washington, Don Cheadle, and Jennifer Beals. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to give a special thank you to Hyper Real Film Club for hosting us as part of their summer programming. In addition to presenting an eclectic mix of the world's greatest movies, Hyper Real Film Club seeks to build a special community around the movie image. They specialize in creating unique movie-watching experiences and unusual, thoughtful, and immersive pop-up environments. Hyperreal also amplify local artists by screening the pieces they've already produced as well as creating paid opportunities for them to create and exhibit new work. They're always looking for collaborators, so whether you have a short film or a music video you'd like to premiere or just looking to connect with other local filmmakers, hit them up. Our first guest today is Gerald Hersey. Gerald is an awesome-based designer and lifelong film fan. Many moons ago, he was a film critic for his college newspaper and for the Tribune in Mesa, Arizona. Locally, he's a member of Austin Film Society and runs a weekly movie club, which is now in its fourth year and currently doing a monthly genre study for 2020. With us also today, we have Karan Spearman. Karan is an Austin-based writer, journalist, and cultural critic whose work can be found at the Austin Chronicle, The Daily Dot, Local Lore, and Texas Music Magazine. Thank you for joining us, guys. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Uh, welcome to Black is Not a Genre. Uh, this is week four of our virtual film series, and we'll be talking about thrillers this week, and in particular, two films by Carl Franklin, uh, One False Move from 1992 and Devil in a Blue Dress from 1995. Today uh, and this week, we're joined by Gerald Hersey, Austin-based designer 
and uh, founder of a local film uh, film series. Thank you for joining us, Gerald. Glad to be here. And we're also joined by freelance writer uh, Karan Spearman, uh, ready, who appears mostly in the Austin Chronicle. Thanks for coming, Karan. Of course, appreciate it. Sweet. So this week we're talking thrillers. It's uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, genre because I think it's it's one of those genres that's almost known more for its subgenres than it is as a general category. Um, so quick, quick blurb, this is from Wikipedia. Thriller is a genre of fiction having numerous often overlapping subgenres. Thrillers are characterized and defined by the moods they elicit, giving viewers heightened feelings of suspense, excitement, surprise, anticipation, and anxiety. Successful examples of thrillers are films of Alfred Hitchcock. Um, thriller is usually a villain-driven plot whereby they present obstacles that the protagonist must overcome. Um, there's a, a cute quote from uh, Nabokov about thrillers. In the Anglo-Saxon thrill, the villain is generally punished and the strong, silent man generally wins the weak, babbling girl. But there is no governmental law in Western countries to ban a story that does not comply with a fond tradition. So that we always hope that the wicked but romantic fellow will escape scot-free and the good but dull chap will be finally snubbed by the moody heroine. Um, and then James Patterson has this to say, thrillers provide such a rich literary feast. There are all kinds, the legal thriller, spy thriller, action adventure thriller, medical thriller, police thriller, romantic thriller, historical thriller, political thriller, religious thriller, high tech thriller, military thriller. The list goes on and on with new variations constantly being invented. In fact, this openness to expansion is one of the genre's most enduring characteristics. But that what gives the variety of thrills a common ground is the intensity of emotions they create, particularly those of apprehension and exhilaration, of excitement and breathlessness, all designed to generate that all-important thrill. By definition, if a thriller doesn't thrill, it's not doing its job. Um, so I think that's interesting, because I think of, of the sort of three other genres we covered, you know, we covered camp, uh, romantic comedy, and, um, Wow, I'm like blanking on the third one. Um, what was the other one we did? We did camp, romantic comedy, and um, it'll come to me. But I think even amongst those, this one is a particular, um, has some particularities that lend itself to, uh, you know, discussions about where uh, where black film fits into this, uh, certain discussions of, black aesthetics or even sort of the exclusion of black films from, from particular genres um, and, and the sort of siloing of, of black films. Um, what did y'all, what, first of all, what do, you, what do you think for you stands out when we're talking about thrillers? Are there any particular criteria that y'all look for? Um, is it as broad as, as Patterson describes it to you or do you have any, any sort of narrower ideas or? Yeah, some of the things um, just from hearing the, you know, the, the textbook definition and, and some and just thinking through the different types of thrillers that that stick out is usually there's like kind of based in reality, but still um, the the stories can get can get twisty, like like sometimes just beyond belief, you know. Right. But um, but they still feel grounded in reality. So <clears throat> one of the things that stood out with some with with these two in particular was um, 
just like how relatable the stories felt mm-hmm. um, just in terms of like someone from the South who had gone out to Hollywood, tried to, tried to prove their fortune. And then the second movie is literally based in Hollywood. Right. Right. But, um, but yeah, just like this feeling of um, just something, something that you can relate to and then just, just taking a step beyond. Um, but like, yeah, but the, but the drama is tight, you know, like it's yeah. like, there's a point where the, it goes from being like, okay, this is, this is a story I, I can relate to these characters a little bit. And then they end up in a, in a tricky situation and it's like, okay, how are they going to get out of this? Right. Know? Well, you know, for me, you know, the noir quality, I guess with, you know, specifically with the devil, um, that felt a little bit, um, I, I like the, obviously the quality of the characters being a little bit uh, ambiguous as far as the moral mm-hmm. context of everything. Um, um, I, I think that, you know, they're, they're kind of different and definitely different in that way, not just stylistically, but just in kind of the, you know, the moral sort of um, um, kind of wavelength that they're either that they're on um i think that's that's a important for me that's an important deal that there's like this sort of a gray in the Mm -hmm. characters um uh, especially the ones that you expect to kind of carry the carry the day like denzel or um you know in the in in the other film um paxton's character is a it's a uh it's an interesting character as a senders so i mean it's it's but it, you know they're they're just it's different films but i think that they accomplished the thriller aspect um uh, pretty well i mean I, I had no like real complaints in that regard but the for me is the more amb- ambiguity is is a is a is a big thing um yeah. in the thrillers and especially in noir films yeah yeah, yeah. definitely um the like the there's definitely more of the um uh, identifying with the anti-hero in mm-hmm. Devil of the Blue Dress, right? Where it's just like, they're all kind of morally ambu- ambiguous, right? Yeah. It's like, like everyone's got questionable motives. But in in uh, One False Move, um, it's it's funny that like, like you don't really want to root for any of them, you know? Yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> it's, like, mm-hmm. it's like you've got, um, and, and one of the things that I, I thought was interesting about One False Move was, um, was just that like the lack of a character to reach onto and it's more just wondering how it's going to play out because right. you hate, you hate the criminals, mm-hmm. but then you just generally, I mean, at least I generally can't root for the cops in a movie. Yeah. And then, and then the good old boy cop is, he's just, you know, it's Bill Paxton just like turned up to 11. Right. right. So it's when you throw them all into a bag and it's just kind of like, how do I want this to play out? You know, no, of course. that was something that was, I was thinking about the whole time. And I love that about that film. I think there's something interesting. You guys mentioned a few things. I think, you know, like Gerald, what you're talking about the, the, in terms of th- both the narrative of a lot of thrillers and it's, it's very tightly woven. There's the idea is to sort of, uh, you know, you start with, you either start with a tangle and see how you can untangle or you start with a knot or you start with a bunch of tangles and you see how you can, how you can tie it up at the end. So it's just, there's a sort of like, um, and there's a, there's a certain enhanced drama where it's like, it's grounded in, in this gritty reality, but there are certain plot points where everything's dialed up to 11 at, at key points, which I think is really important. And, and, you know, Karan, you mentioned the noir aspect. I think 
that's really interesting, not just in terms of Carl Franklin, but also in terms of, you know, the thriller genre where it's, you know, there's a lot of, there's constant debate over where film noir is deserving of its own uh, sort of genre category, or if it's too much of a subcategory, or if it's too, if it's too, um, if it's simply just a style. Um, I think, you know, there's an interview that I came across in the Village Voice when they were do, uh, there was a film a theater in New York that was doing a retrospective on both of these films. Um, and, you know, Franklin talks about his love of, of, of noir films, his love of both noir and, and you know, particularly Hitchcock and Chinatown um, and how he, you know, when he made One False Move, this is in 1992, there was, there was, there's kind of like a, there was a nexus of like the black film new wave and the sort of like neo-noir movement. But, you know, he, he says that when he made the film, he saw it as a crime drama and he didn't really, the neo-noir tag kind of came afterwards. Um, and so he was, he was kind of approaching this, uh, here's a good quote. He says, I just thought it was a crime drama when we were shooting it. I looked at it and I tried to examine it and approach it from a sociological perspective and having been an actor from a psychological perspective. I didn't necessarily see Fantasia as a femme fatale character because she wasn't driving the action in the beginning. Of course she does finally. The decision to go to Arkansas certainly brings about the demise of those characters, but in a lot of ways I didn't think noir at the time. So there's this way in which, you know, there's a there's a kind of almost narrative that Franklin's creating in these two films because uh, you know, One False Move was his debut film, which kind of is incredible. Because I think it's, as far as like the tightness of the film, I think it's close to perfect. But it's, it was, it was his debut film in 1992. He had been previous, he, he was an actor, I think he was on Fantasy Island, uh, one of those sort of like 80s TV shows. But he got into film slowly but surely. I think he did one short um, after going to film school. And then... Um, 1992 the film was actually slated to go straight to video uh, or uh, straight to tv and then i guess subsequently video but um it showed a, a couple of screenings or if they sent out screeners but critics loved it so much and blew it up so much that uh, it got a limited film release and actually did really well um and it made um e both ebert and siskel's best uh, best films of the year list which in 1992, if you remember, was actually a pretty big deal. That was the same year Malcolm X came out, um, Sense of a Woman, um, which not a good film, but but won the Oscar. Um, there were a couple, and there were a couple other big hitters that came out that year. Um, but Unforgiven too. Unforgiven, yes, that's the other one I was thinking of. Unforgiven, which was Oscar. I mean, in a sense, it all there was, you know, this in a cynical sense, it's almost like. People were looking for films aside from Malcolm X to give their plaudits, but that's another story. Uh, but I think there's this way in which, you know, One False Move was almost an accidental noir. And then in, three years later, when he came out with Devil in a Blue Dress, it was like, okay, I'm just going to lean into this. And so it's like, it's set, it's set in the sort of time frame that we see most noir fiction, 1948, um, based on the novel and detective series by uh, Walter Mosley. Um, so I, I think there is, there's something interesting going on with Franklin. And he's also quoted as saying that he, he doesn't even really think thrillers is like his bag necessarily. It's not even his forte. He just, he's like, I, I prefer dramas. And I think that there, we're in a sort of a time period where we don't, those don't just, those just don't get made 
very much anymore. Um, but I, I think that goes a long way in terms of uh, describing his, his approach to these, these dramas, uh, these, these thrillers in terms of the sort of toolkit that he's working with. Um, you see the, there's the scene in One False Move where uh, Fantasia reunites with his brother and there's these crop duster planes going back and forth and he makes no bones about that. Yeah. that that's a North by Northwest reference. Um, but I think the, the sort of general feel of the, of, and the tone of these films, uh, I think it's marked by, there's a, there's a particular patience that he has with the narrative where it's like, you know, you hear the term like slow boil, but he kind of takes that to a certain extent and he kind of fuses that with the sort of regional sense. Like he's, his films are set uh, in the, either in the South or um, in the case of Devil in a Blue Dress in Los Angeles in a way that is constantly referring to black migration from the South to LA. Um, Absolutely. So I think, um, I guess let's start with one false move because I think what's cool about that is as opposed to Devil in a Blue Dress, which is much more, um, much more typical in its approach to, to noir and that it has a single protagonist. It has uh, Denzel's uh, Easy Rollins voiceover to sort of guide the, the viewer through this uh, typical detective novel framework. But what you pointed out about One False Move that I think is, is one of the defining uh, elements of, of its structure is that there is no central protagonist. We, we, the, the action is driven by these two uh, opposing forces that are headed towards a conflict, but we're not, we're not meant to side with any one particular character. Um, how did y'all, how did y'all feel in terms of how that was, um, how that sort of dictates the action? Did you feel like it was an effective way to sort of build tension? Yeah, the, um, one of the things that, that I took note of is um, just from, because I moved out here from Arizona, so I've driven down, mm -hmm. I drove down I-10, right, to, to move here, but also having gone to college in Arizona and done spring break in, in California multiple times, you take I-10 out of Phoenix to go out to LA and all this stuff. Absolutely. So I felt like geography in that movie was something that just, because, you know, they're, they're gradually mm -hmm. moving along, and then the, in the parallel story, it's telling you what's happening in the small town at the same time. So, like, the geography of it, of like, oh, well, we had to ditch this car and we got to go a different route now. So it was like, I, was, I felt very aware of where they were as they were like heading toward the standoff, right? Mm -hmm. All these misadventures that they get into in these, in these small Texas towns. Um, that was one, that was one element that I, that I really enjoyed that, um, that he, it, in one sense, it's like these, like, like lovers on the run uh, right. type of type of scenario. And then, and then it's just kind of like the, you know, the kind of the the awaiting standoff at the same time. So we, uh, our genre study this year, we're doing one a month. So in February, we did Lovers on the Run. And I originally did pick One False Move, but then Queen and Slim had come out. And so I changed my movie uh, to Queen and Slim, but I still had this on the list to watch. So uh, this was like perfect timing for me. because oh, I, I wanted to watch this movie this year anyway. But, um, but yeah, but that was one thing that stood out to me was just like how, how we kind of set the story up using geography in one sense, but also kind of setting up that almost kind of, almost like a Western, you know, where it's yeah, like, you exactly. know, you know, like there, there's a standoff that you know is coming. The standoff. And I, yeah, I think that was one of the things I, I, I noticed. Uh, and it, it's repeated again in Devil in the Blue Dress, but the geography of everything that's like, and that is, that is sort of a trope of, of, you know, detective 
novels and sort of noir anyway. It's just like, oh, you're headed here. But he really kind of hammers it home, particularly in one sauce move where it's like every time they enter a new city, he reminds you exactly where they are. Um, and, you know, there's there's a lot of bright um, references. There's a there's a moment when Fantasia and there's a tense moment in the convenience store with Fantasia's with Ray. And she said, should we get a map of Texas? He's like, we don't need no map. So there's the, there's this constant re reference to uh, sort of directional tension. Um, I think that that works really well. Um, Karan, what, what do you think about that? I guess, you know, one thing that I kind of took away from it was um, they were all looking for something more and not really understanding how to get to what they wanted, what they really mm -hmm. wanted. Um, you know, they, they want, you know, more money or they want more power or they, they, there's this sort of a power struggle thing. Everybody wants more. It's a disease of more throughout right. the entire movie. The Paxton's character wants more, like he wants to be big time. So there's always that part of it too. Um, so it's, I think it's kind of these like collisions of, of um, wanting, wanting throughout the entire film, them wanting of something, striving for something. So the directional part, I felt like kind of molded into that part um, where people are just like kind of, you know, they're moving in different directions, but not, but it's kind of spinning the compass in a way, but not really because they're, and, and they're not really meeting what they, what they really want and not mm -hmm. never really getting what they're looking for either. Um, and even to to the end of the movie, nobody really gets what they want. Right. Ever. They didn't. They they're striving and striving and striving, and nobody reaches it. No, I think the little details. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh uh, no, a couple of little details that that uh, stuck out to me too was the, um, you know, uh, one I I do want to go in on Billy Bob Thornton on this one because he because he because he wrote the screenplay. Yeah, but the did. um, but the uh how the two how his two associates are are pluto and fantasia which were these like disney references right yeah, so it's just yeah. kind of like like these people from la coming coming back down south with these with these disneyfied names right it's just like how they basically they're living these these alternate lives you know out in la where they're you know robbing people and stuff <laughs> um, but yeah that was that was one that stuck out to me too but yeah but uh so billy bob thornton right like one like I, I do, I do like him, but he he just goes full. He just goes full on in this movie, like the <laughs> with the ponytail from the very start. And, yeah, in the first scene, like you know, he he's beating people up and killing. I mean, like he he hits a black woman in the face several times in this movie in a row. And and then I so I can't help but think back to Monsters Ball, and I was just like, I just don't trust Billy Bob Thornton with black women, man. I just can't do it. <laughs> but then I'm thinking, man, he wrote this movie. Like he made himself like like the worst character in the movie, mm -hmm. right? So I, I thought I was like, all right, well. You know, like, I, I give him credit for that. It's like, but but yeah, but I was I was I was a little surprised by that. That I, I, I didn't know that he wrote this until until the, until you know that first viewing. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the first things that I, you know, I was interested in because it, it. Franklin, I think one of the things I I like about his work, what little of it I've seen, is I think that the texts that he chooses are really, uh, not just rich on their own, but I think he. He pick. He seems to pick things that he can sort of, uh, that he can maybe twist as in the right word, but frame in a way, in his own particular way. I think visually, uh, such that the the themes come across um, 
both both subtly and um and uh and when the time calls for it more overtly i think uh the screenplay is interesting because it it deals with it's it's infused with this sense of like you know it's a it's a typical in some ways it's a typical like caper gone wrong in other ways it's uh it's a like a, a cop drama in some ways it's a twisted lover on the run but in a lot of ways it's just sociologically it, it's um it deals with sort of regional and cultural differences it deals with race in in ways that are both um typical and atypical um i i really love and we can talk about this more i think one of the things i like about one false move is that it use a lot of use a lot of the constraints of the genre to pick at these sort of scabbed over uh, notions of, uh, you know, things like violence against black women, um, miscegenation, which is, you know, we'll get into because like in a second, just because there's, I don't know, maybe that maybe we should have a spoiler alert, who knows. Um, but I think that the, the script and the cast in this case is, is really interesting. Cinda Williams, who was actually married to Billy Bob Thornton at this time, uh, from I think they were married from 1990 to 92. Um, this is after I want to say Mo Better Blues. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is after her turn in that in that in Spike Lee's Mo Better Blues, um, and it's you know it ends up being uh, a major plot point that she's a fair-skinned black woman. Um, Michael Beach, who is a brilliant character actor, I think really underappreciated. He's done a lot of TV work. Um, but he was most recently in uh, If Beale Street Could Talk. He was really good in that film. Um, and he's a piece of work in this film. <laughs> he's, he plays this sort of uh, really kind of unhinged, uh, you know, sort of genius. They talk about his, his IQ. Um, and he's kind of like the master, the, the sort of secret mastermind behind this. I know, exactly. It was like another great cop movie trope. Um, but again, in terms of like the regionality, like his character... Uh, who's like the in a lot of ways the the scary wild card uh, I believe comes from Chicago and yes. which is also where Mouse is from in uh, Devil Wears a Blue and the Devil Wears a Blue Dress um, so there's this there's I love this sort of recurrentness of, of characters that again that are along this sort of uh, regional pipeline of black migration which is Chicago LA Texas uh, Arkansas um, you know, of these, these characters that are like, oh, they just came in, they just hot cop hopped the bus from Chicago. It's just like, this idea is like, oh, he's from Chicago. He's crazy. You might not really want to trust him. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's literally my family story. Like, yeah. like grandma moved from Arkansas out to California and then settled in Nevada. Right. It's, um, <clears throat> yeah. The, uh, one of the, one of the things about, uh, going on Bill Paxton for a sec. Uh -huh. So, uh, the scene where he like, discusses with I forget both costumes I'd have to look at the look at the uh, cast information real quick but when he's talking to the cops and he's just like you know I, I think I'm ready to you know ready for the big time ready to move out to LA right right so um so one point of one kind of point of reference for for both of these movies mm -hmm. uh, uh was is a documentary called Bastards of the Party um which is about kind of like the history of the Crips and the Bloods in LA mm -hmm. uh but uh Clebone who who produced that documentary when he was in jail read uh, City of Quartz which kind of tells the kind of story of LA and goes in on a lot of the social movements and, and the growth of gangs and all these other things and one of the things about the LAPD is that they specifically recruited cops from the south 
to come to come to move out to LA and to police like to police you know minority areas right so it's like there's there is a deep-seated history of finding mm-hmm. cops from the south who they knew would be aggressive towards black and hispanic people so it was it totally stuck out to me that conversation where he's like i think i'm ready for the big time i'm ready i think i could come out to la and we could all be partners it's just kind of like yeah man you're, you're like 20 years too late <laughs> <laughs> no that's a like, that's a really great point particularly in the sense of the the when the cops kind of sort of laugh him off um and that's there's a certain you know it's played both for like pathos and this sort of like darker side of of this this place of like la where that that not only chews up and spits out like criminals and black people but also like police officers too but like of course like what you're talking about is highlights the irony of that of them sort of laughing that off and they're just like just like yeah we know y'all are already out here so (laughs) there's there's no need for any more of these of you um karan were were you gonna say something no 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 i was that was a really good point i had not even i've known that but i had not even made that i did not make that connection um in the course of the film that's very interesting um but my family it's the same thing my family's from you know east texas Mm -hmm. louisiana both sides um, and they also moved to California. They also moved to Seattle, which is, was yeah. an entirely different thing. Uh, but they're definitely out to Los Angeles. And it's very interesting to me to, to know, to think of that period of time in, in Devil in the Blue Dress. You know, that was the time that they kind of went out there. And I'm, I'm imagining, so is that the way it looked? You know, looking back on yeah, the film yeah. now, mm-hmm. um, is that the way it was when they got there? Um, what kind of opportunities they had? Um, you know, what it took to maintain and what it took to raise a family and, you know, owning a home. And one thing that, 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 that was very interesting to me is at the very last frame, not the last frame, but it's the last scene um, where he's in his yard, his front mm-hmm. or his porch. And on the newspaper, it yeah. says, you know, you, you read the little, the, the headline right there. Always but the, the if, you, if you look at the very top, though, it says Negroes, like something paraphrasing negroes yeah. upset about the negroes angered new, by new property restrictions new property right. restrictions yeah. exactly right right so that also kind of goes into um you know the redlining and goes into um um the with the the, the restrictive deeding um not selling your you know so all that stuff too yeah. um which which black people had to face you know in that time yeah, that was that was another reason I went back. I had to find that documentary on YouTube. Can't find a good copy of it anywhere. But that's another thing that that they, that, that book points out is um, so in LA, you like all the areas that we think of as black as black areas now in LA. Those used to be all white neighborhoods, mm-hmm. right? And so after after integration, you know, a lot of the times, like um, you know, these kids were getting bused to schools in different areas, and like they they were forming gangs just because they were getting beat up. But then you have white flight, and so then you so then the geograph the geographics of the city totally changed. But yeah, that stuck out to me too about how he was a homeowner, and it was just like yeah, like it was it was there were small pockets of of successful black folks who were able to buy homes and things like that, but it was rare. And and then then you see like the whole all those neighborhoods change over over the course of you know about twenty years or so when you you get you know all types of all types of new newfangled gentrification and a much more aggressive police force and just kind of like back and forks into these in these pockets and corners where they could you know where they could try to live but 
yeah, that the, the, the geographics of that stuff like really stuck out to me. Um, uh, in, in the second film of just like, man, like this, this probably felt like a little Renaissance, you know, exactly. Just like, you know, central Avenue was, it was jumping, right. It was like, mm-hmm. the, like the, the, the blues clubs and, you know, and like, but cause LAPD was running a protection racket. We saw yeah. all of that stuff in that movie, you know, yep. it's like those cops in the neighborhood, they were just collecting money from all those black business owners, you know, just like, Oh, you want, you want us down here? You know, you're gonna have to pay us off. Yeah. You know? exactly. So it's like the, how, how flexible the cops were in that movie you know like yeah, flex, with, like who, who's paying us you know no i think that's great I, the the final scene in devil's in, in devil in a blue dress is it's gorgeous um and i think the and it like you said it it's sort of the the, sh- the long shots of people playing in their neighborhood and the lawn and i think he, he's you know the line is uh you know he denzel easy rollins has this long sort of soliloquy to, to end the film. And he's, he talks about sitting on his front porch on his lawn in the house that he owns. And there it is, this this snapshot of this era, like after World War II and before the white flight you're describing where there was a, like a mini oasis for black people in LA. And you hear about it from people in the South. That's why they started coming out there like, oh, we could, people were sending word that they were like, you can move to LA the cops don't bother you as much as long as everyone pays off. You can, you can, maybe you could get a house. There are schools here. And then that headline on the newspaper is sort of like the, the sort of harbinger of what's to come right. very, very shortly of, of all of that kind of ending. And you, there's a, there's a moment early in the film where you sort of see that the seeds of that starting to happen, the white flight and the, and the sort of end of the, the mini oasis where, uh, one of his neighbors is a, it's a woman driving by and Easy's like, oh, where are you going? He's like, I'm going back to Houston. This place is too fast for me. So there's, there's this element, there's the, the cultural, there's obviously the culture class between the South and the West and Hollywood. Um, but then there's also this element of, you know, she might've she might have seen something uh, coming down the road that other people didn't see. And, you know, the irony of her going back to Houston is that now, you know, people are looking back into sort of the civic dynamics of Houston and like actually Houston compared to most of the other cities in the South has actually done a much better job of, of achieving equitable housing and jobs for black people. Um, so there's a way in which that character is almost ahead of the curve. Um, but yeah, I think going back to, to one false move, there's a, there's a lot done here with casting. Um, like you mentioned, Bill Paxson and, and Carl Franklin mentioned uh, the casting of, of, uh, a bill, the late Bill Paxton too. And he talks about it. He says, I always feel that an intelligent person can play someone less intelligent. It's difficult for an unintelligent person to play some, someone intelligent. It's harder to scale up than it is to scale down. Bill was always someone we, was someone we always wanted. He's a very guileless guy, just kind of like a clear channel. Um, bill was one of those guys who was honest up front. And that was the character Hurricane. I hadn't seen a lot of his work. I'd seen Near Dark. Uh, which was a Catherine Bigelow uh, vampire movie. Mm. And uh, I seen him in Aliens. But there was something about him that we just felt automatically that's the guy. Um, and I think originally they weren't allowed to cast him, but it, it took a longer, it took them, they had to like, he wanted to cast him right away, actually. Um, but because of, I think, Hollywood or like Guild issues, he had to, they had to go through a casting process. But he, Hurricane functions really, well in this film i think he is this sort of like on the surface dim-witted but he's one of those guys that sort of sees more than he lets on or even sees more than oh, he thinks um for sure and I, I 
there's a there's a lot of quirks he has you know his tendency to cut people off and pretend that he's listening but not listening um mm-hmm. you know that first call he has with the cops calling in and they can't even get a word in, and they're just like all smirking and laughing he's this like excitable kind of puppy dog small town police officer um but then you there's that moment where he he takes uh he takes the out-of-town cops on a ride along and he he gets out the car this dude this dude is like assaulting his his uh (laughs) his girlfriend's house with an axe and the car you see the lapd's reaction they both get out the car and draw their guns because this is this is a high high potential situation for them but bill paxton neutralizes the situation you realize that he knows these people he he's he says afterwards like i'm here like twice a week it's fine he mediates between him and his wife calms the situation down and there's this this weird sense again like this is a no caping for copstone but there's this there's this idea there that uh he's almost modeling this form of like community policing uh, right that, right. that that the LAPD will not be familiar with this like this idea of how how do how can cops function in an environment where there is mutual respect people know each other and there's an accountability um so I think there's a there's an interesting role that he's playing there I don't know Karam well we he lives about? there right so yeah, he lives there deal you know that's a thing like that's a, a real thing mm-hmm. you know I think of you know here uh, in, in Austin Texas I know that you know, a lot of the people who police certain areas do not li- obviously do not live in those areas. Nope. Of course, that is true across the country, right? Right. Where you know, let's say here, for example, you know, they may they police in Austin, you know, whatever area, um, Dove Springs or whatnot, but then they they'll live in Southwest Austin. Mm-hmm. So they won't. They, there's no connection where versus you know, Hurricane. He he knew those people. He went to those restaurants. He did everything. Even whether he was at work in the uniform or out of uniform, they were familiar with him in all facets of his life, which right. is a t- an entirely different thing um, than like, I'm sure the, the, the LA police officers or, you know, the, the big city cops, um, they're not walking their beat and getting to know people on their beat. It's not, that's not happening. Right. Yeah. The very, very few, um, like a friend of mine lives in Chicago and if you're a civil servant in Chicago, you have to live within the city limits. So what ends up happening is um, the more affordable areas, like on the south side, there's neighborhoods that he lives in because he works at Midway. And there's all this all these old kind of tract housing that they built for auto workers when they still had auto plants in the area. And those those neighborhoods are full of cops, teachers and firefighters because they all work for the city. So it's like all all the way down to the city limit. It's mostly civil servants who live in who live in neighborhoods. So it's just like. You know, but rules like that do go a long way. It does it, it does yeah. factor into you know folks being not only invested in the community, but like you know, their their job actually like being in the community that they're working in. You know, well, you see like, the opposite in places in like New York or the NYPD, where it's they have those same you know rules and restrictions, but it's very well known that a ton of cops through various you know finagling and fake addresses live as far as like New Jersey and right. are able to still police mm-hmm. neighborhoods and and in manhattan um so i yeah i mean i think paxton and you as you again we're getting now we're getting in more spoiler territory but you sort of start to see why why hurricane is so is so pivotal for this story and uh there's you sort of start to there's certain things that get revealed about him as you go on the there's that sort of moment where he's at dinner 
He's invited the two cops over. One of them is Black, played by Earl Bennings, who's another great veteran actor. Um, and he just casually drops the N-word when he's talking about the, the, the three criminals arriving. Um, and he's, he does, he has, Paxton does this great job of just delivering the line in this way where he doesn't even realize he said it until his, and even when his wife kicks him under the table, he doesn't quite, it takes him a second to realize why she kicked him. Um, and there's this sort of just like this, uh, this sort of uh, dull, um, you know, blatantly unaware sort of racism that sort of, uh, that it's, it's like a colloquial racism that he's, mm -hmm. that he's depicting in this way. And as we find out later on, it's, it's a part of the fabric of this of this place where it it fe it feeds again it feeds back into these these themes that Carl that Franklin keeps sort of recurring about this sort of the the spectrum between casual colloquial racism and extreme violence extreme violence particularly against black women and I think from the opening scene like you said with Billy Bob Fortin comes in and he's interrogating the black woman who's uh, Fantasia's friend who she essentially set up so there's this instantly there's this betrayal of a black woman through um of, by another black woman and then there's this sort of uh visceral violence and it's until the very end it's actually the only overt just depiction of 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 that kind of violence throughout the film maybe there's one other element i think when fantasia kills the cop yeah, he, but um yeah, she, he slaps her one good time as well yeah um, it's, there's a there's a certain extremeness, and I think Franklin talks about this too. He's like, I think it was important. He said it was important for him to to let the audience know right off the bat what they were dealing with, and then he spends the rest of the the film sort of building the tension of, of what of what might happen and what that means. And so he spends the middle part of the film dealing with the fallout and communicating what this violence means to the different characters from their different vantage points, um, and then. I mean, we might as well just, you know, if you don't want to, if you don't want spoilers, sorry, but um, so it, it kind of comes down to this sort of alternate hidden climax, which uh, dealing with the relationship between Ray and Fantasia and he, and both, it's funny because it, it, there is this constant sort of question that keeps asking and it's, it's common in like sort of film noir and detective movies and thrillers. It's like, um, you know, detective uh, McFeely asked um asked dale once he asked him twice and th this happens a lot he's like do you it's like how do you know fantasia or how well do you know lila and he asked him a second time in, in a sense and the second time he's implying he's like so really how do you know this girl and he says and dale laughs so he's like haha very funny but he gets he's very angry and defensive mm. um and it so we find out that dale and uh lila uh have a child together and dale um this is something that happened because dale um has sex with lila when she was 17 and so there's this um there's this there's this uh sort of element that franklin's playing with um and then there's the there's the larger reveal when when lila is talking to dale that her father was also white um and they have they have he and her he and her he and her brother both have white both have a white dad and so there's this you know he's playing with this sort of trope of the the tragic mulatto in a lot of ways and then he's also dealing with this the the roots of that in terms of harkening back to 
to white male and black female sexual assault, even as by, by to sort of sexual assault and rape and um, in the history of slavery. Um, and he's, he's coming at it in this terms of, of sort of like a, a crime procedural, but what he's doing, I think is he's, he's using a lot of the tropes of the genre to uh, explicate the, the deeper issues. And so we see that again in um, Devil in a Blue Dress uh, with a central character, the, the woman in the blue dress that they're all looking for, uh, Daphne Monet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and you know, her hidden secret ends up being very similar in that she's passing for white. Um, and again, Easy Rollins is asked multiple times and he asks other people multiple times, like, do you know her? How do you know her? Do you know her? So there's this sort of like, there becomes this sort of secret alliance between people who know these figures and who know who they are. It's, it's, it's a big deal that Dale knows her Fantasia's real name. It's a big mm -hmm. deal in the opening, the sort of early on that, um, I'm forgetting her name, who is the, the woman, uh, she's, the, she's again, another black woman who's the first, the first woman to die in Devil in a, in a Blue Dress. Um, oh, Coretta. Coretta, yeah. Coretta. Um, another great name. Uh, there's this, there's a secret alliance between her and, and Daphne because she knows Daphne's secret. Um, and there's, there's a lot that he's playing with. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a couple of quotes that we can get into. But what, what did y'all think about the way that was depicted in uh, One False, starting with One False Move? Yeah, um, and one false move. I I think in my notes because I just took shorthand to to refer back to. I think I wrote it down as white daddy issues. Mm -hmm. But the uh, but there's a the, he he's very clever in how he sets that up. So right. um, the first time uh, Hurricane sees um, I forget what the little boy's name is, but the first time he sees him, like he's talking to the to the to the white couple who had just gotten married, right? And then he That's sees joint. yeah he sees her brother and the little boy together, and it looks like he's just it looks like he's just kind of like casing a couple of black people, right? So it's yeah. just kind of like, oh, okay, a couple of black people in a southern town, this cop's staring at him, looking at him weird, okay, right? But then there's the scene in the gas station where Billy Bob starts to get nervous because the state trooper's in there. Mm -hmm. And they walk out, and, uh, and, and the, the lady behind the counter says something to him that's just kind of like, oh, you know, it's like, I see you staring at her or whatever, and he's just like, oh, you know I like him young. Yeah. And, and it doesn't really click how young she is until until she starts talking about the little boy's birthday, right? Yeah. And it's just like, she's like 21 years old, mm -hmm. right? And she's already got a five-year-old kid. And so when you, so then when you think about her having been with, with Hurricane, it was just kind of like, this seems like a situation where it's like, this doesn't seem like they were in a, in a consensual romantic relationship. This seems like he kind of used his power right. over her, you know, and, and then this is the result. So um, yeah, so I felt like, like the director was very, was very, uh, he, he, he pieced that together. He dropped, he dropped hints in ways that like, that played up the, a lot, a lot of the times just like, the racial tension when in mm -hmm. fact he was actually dropping hints about like, Hey, um, maybe part of the reason that she's with this, this bum ass looking Billy Bob Thornton character is because this has been, this has been kind of beaten into her head from, from her life experiences. You know, it's just kind of like an absent white dad sexually assaulted by by this older white cop and now she's with you know, she's with this older you know thug out in LA right so it's just it's just like this pattern that keeps playing out in her life over and over again um that, that that's something that stuck stuck out to me but I like the way that he built it up you know no absolutely I think he 
he's a he's incredibly adept at uh dropping clues not not necessarily just in a way that like you know all the films uh all the the films in the genre tend to do but in a way that um that is always hinting at something a little bit deeper and even things that uh that black viewers might pick up quicker than white viewers which i think is something that he, he does particularly well in uh devil in a blue dress uh karam what were you what were you going to say about them no they the, you you both your points are are on point um the the other part of with uh uh fantasia's character is you know looking back on it you can see why it was very easy for her to kind of uh, turn her back on the black woman at the at the, at the beginning because uh-huh. there's already that that relationship of sort of this uh, antagonism of you being the mulatto versus the black you know so it's that 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 kind of relationship or a lack thereof sometimes on the film and in real life um, it was easy for her to sort of like pit herself against her and then easy for her to to you know understand that the, the black woman the darker skinned black woman is going to die you right. know it made it okay you know because she's been with the, these white men that do these things this is what white this is what black, white men do right. this is their this is their their um their attitude towards black people this is their uh especially uh, or the, the the other scene too is when they were they had just like left thing they were at a hotel and uh, Michael Beach's characters, you know, he ends up kind of getting mad at at um, Thornton's character. And but the way that she kind of antagonizes him, you know, with uh, she kind of antagonizes him, you know, oh, once you have some fun, and you know, but so she's not even she's never on the side of the black people at any point, really in the in the in the course of the film um yeah so that was my take on that now in devil in the blue dress um well i guess you were gonna lead into that so i'm gonna let you do that no i mean i think there's i mean we can always move back and forth between the films there there are a couple of things like i think i think you're right there's this element where i i love i love uh i love cinda's cinda um Williams performance in this film I also I think and I think her character is uh really brilliantly fleshed out I think she has some of the coldest lines in this whole movie oh yeah oh, oh my god yeah. so, uh, and it, you fuck me because I look white but dump me because I'm black it's just kind like, of like wow <laughs> and it's and I like she does oh. her character does such a great job of like I think in a lot of ways especially towards the end sort of she she sort of confounds this typical Hollywood version of the tragic mulatto who sort of like can't find the world between both worlds and is helpless in both in both situations. You see along the way, you like at first she has this sort of like along for the ride here in the headlights thing. She doesn't she didn't know that they were going to kill the first the people that that she was betraying. Um, we see her sort of empathy with finding the little boy, and of course you know we find out later that there's a certain sort of tug that was almost unavoidable because she has a son um but along the way we see her we start to see her usefulness within the group is that she is a smooth talker and not just in this sort of like femme fatale way in a way where she's like 
when they get stopped by the trooper, she comes up with a story off the top of her head. And that's just like airtight actually in the moment in terms of, uh, you know, convincing the trooper what they're doing. She, she's very charming. She convinces uh, Ray not to lose his head in the convenience store. Um, we even see it when she finally confronts um, Dale where she is just, she has this way about her of where you can tell that she's used to navigating things sure. um, on, her way, on her own. It's a survival tactic Surviving. and it's something that she's gotten very good at. Um, and I think, you know, what Franklin's doing is playing with this well-worn tradition of, of a lot of characters. You know, there's uh, one of the first actual uh, black novels uh, or black written novels on record. And one of the first, the earliest depictions of slavery was a film called, uh, or a novel called, I think it's whatever mulatta is in, Fran in French, uh, but it's a film by, it's by a black uh, French Orleans uh, author. Um, and it, it talks about the plight of, a, of a, the product of, of slave and uh, master miscegenation. Then there were the, um, there were the sort of race problem films of the 30s and 40s. So there's the, uh, Oscar Michaud. There's Oscar, oh, yeah. Oscar Michaud. And then- um, One Drop of Black Blood. The One Drop yeah. of Black Blood. Then there's Imitation of Life in 1934, um, which actually cast a mixed race woman, which was so controversial that it didn't really happen again. And then actually one of the few instances of actual mixed race women being cast in these roles is Devil in the Blue Dress. Um, and then also Julie, uh, Julie Dash's uh, Illusions. Um, and there's, there's a way in which, because a lot of the problem films, like the seedy pulp films, they, you know, they cast the, mixed, the secretly mixed race woman in this way simply as just an element of sensationalism for a mainly white audience. There's no real dissection of what that means in terms of, uh, racial categories and racial oppression. Um, but I think what's so cool about One False Move and um, Devil in a Blue Dress is, particularly in One False Move, is there's a certain amount of agency that he gives those characters, um, or that he gives Fantasia's character in particular. Um, and I think it sort of flips the genre in its head in a sense where it forces the viewer to deal with what that means from her perspective. And it forces it forces the, the, the audience to understand that it's, there's no, there's always an, illu an illusion to how someone, how, like how a human whose mixed race was created, like an imitation of life, the mother is always depicted as this sort of like, um, typically, like, typically un sexually undesirable, like mammy character, um, with a Hattie McDaniel plays the mother in, in imitation of life. Um, Whereas this, you know, one false move is just like, no, this is actually just a product of sexual assault, probably multiple times. And there's a confrontation that the viewer is not allowed to look away from that, that kind of mirrors the opening, very graphic opening of the murders. Um, and again, like the line, some of the lines that she has. Um, I think I've only seen says, the second, the remake of... Uh... Which imitation one? of life but yeah because there's, the there's, there's, there's two versions there's I, I've, Stahl I've seen and that. then uh douglas cirque i think remake that's it. the one that i've seen um, yeah that's the 59 that's one. one yes exactly and um she there's the line where dale is he's in the house with lila they're waiting for the other two criminals for billy bob and and pluto to arrive and it precedes the line that you talked about it says uh dale's really distraught he's poor poor dale he says lila even if i wanted to help you i couldn't i don't have the legal authority 
she said, you didn't have the legal authority to fuck me when I was 17, but you did that, <laughs> didn't you? Um, and I think there is this, there's this way in which she, uh, she starts to steer the narrative towards the end of the film. Um, she, she basically sort of dictates uh, how the, the final, the climactic interaction uh, occurs. Um, and she forces Dale to deal with this, to deal with himself in this way that uh, his character is not necessarily known for. Um, and I think there's a really good you know, sort of transitioning in Devil in the Blue Dress. There's a good book um, that I've read bits and pieces of. It's called Mixed Race Hollywood. And there's a chapter, uh, there's a chapter in it by Aisha Bastion. And it's called Detecting Difference in Devil in a Blue Ray in a Blue Dress. And it, it talks about how the film um, uses the cultural legibility of film noir and the sort of uh, the narrative tactics to um, to almost make the viewer complicit in in uh, unpacking the sort of like reification of race. Uh, so it, you know, in the same way where it forces the sources viewers to like follow the tropes of detective novels and look for clues. It makes them look for clues of uh, of racial difference and sort of reproduce them in the act of watching the films. Uh, there's a good quote that says, "Film noir concerns the solving of mysteries, often mysteries linked to mistaken dual or secret identities." The mulatta figure, especially the woman who passes for white, bears a vexed relationship to racial classification, exciting the search for signs of racial identity. Framed by the detective's gaze, Daphne Monet is cast as a mystery to be solved. How does Devil in the Blue Dress engage the viewer in this attempt to solve the problem of the mulatta's place in the racial order? If the hard-boiled detective fiction is about the pursuit of knowledge, what are the implications of this will to knowledge for the reification of race? If, as the film's trailer asserts, Ezekiel Rollins is in search of the truth, how does he and the viewer uncover racial truths? Um, so I think there's, and you know, the example they give is that first interaction with DeWitt, with Tom Sizemore, who's predictably creepy um, as in that role. And he talks, it's just all the sort of horrible detective novel innuendo, but he, he gets really pointed when he's like, you know, she has a, a predilection for, for pig feet and dark meat. And so it, there is this way in which it forces the, the viewer to, to not only read the code of language in, in terms of like the mystery to be solved, but in terms of the racial implications of that. Um, what, uh, what did y'all think of the um, Jennifer Beals character in terms of the way it was used um, within uh, Devil in a Blue Dress? Yeah, I, I think the, um, when, you, when you find out the, because when, when you see Frank, when you see uh, when Frank comes to his house uh, after he's been dropping his name all over town, because uh, think, he thinks that that's her boyfriend and he's trying to draw him out. Mm -hmm. and Frank shows up with the knife <laughs> and you see how light-skinned Frank is like it right. immediately kind of like yo there's something else going on here you know <laughs> um but so then like when when you know the big reveal is that you know that she's you know got the one drop of black blood essentially um that I was I wasn't I wasn't surprised by that it was just like I felt like 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 some some hints had been dropped um but the uh but yeah I, I felt like it was when they kind of tied it together with with the money and like how like essentially like hell she was still trying to help her man um mm -hmm. you know but then she had got the money because the family's trying to pay her off it was just kind of like to me like that was the 
like that was the big reveal it was just like yo like um she like it's not it wasn't so much that the dude was you know that he didn't love her it was like actually he did it was just like nah the family was getting in the way you know it was like, right oh, okay like it, it just just like that that scene where it plays out where they're at the they're at the uh the observatory or whatever and you know like and he's the the the, the, the narration holds our hands through that a bit but like uh but yeah that, i felt like that was you really, you really, you really felt a lot of empathy for her in that moment, where you saw like she, like she was, she was really hustling to try to help this dude be become the mayor. Yeah. But then, then it's still just kind of like, when you see the, just as a parallel, when you see the, uh, Terrell, the the child, <laughs> the child molester running for office, like he's 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 I'm a friend of the Negro, right? He's like he got him yeah, out of jail, yeah. like he's like you see him shaking hands with black people on the street or all this stuff, right? But then. Um, but then the other dude literally has a black girlfriend, right? But like, but in order for him to become mayor, he's gonna have to turn his back on her. It, it was yeah, just, exactly. I thought that that was, uh, I thought that was an interesting parallel. Um, no, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a paradox that he's playing with and he, you know, Easy has that voiceover line that says the color line works both ways. Even a rich man like Todd Carter was afraid to cross it. Um, and there's, again, like with the, the geography, there's, you know, this conf- constant reference to, to lines and like the opening song of the credits is that got this girl on the west side. So there's like sides of town and another one of Fantasia's uh, cold, cold lines. He's, he talks about he's when she's uh, she's talking about Dale's uh, Dale's wife, Bonnie. Um, and he says, I bet. I bet Bonnie would be surprised to find out she had a, or oh no, it's his daughter. I bet Bonnie would be surprised to find out she had a half brother over on, over on the nigger side of town. Um, and so there's this, this constant like uh, dichotomy between both, you know, the, the sort of simplistic uh, view of, of racism in terms of this, this idea of like picking sides and then there's like, you know, Quran references, like there's this noir, noir concept of the gray space in between. So that's what makes the mulatta such a, I think such a both easy and useful character in terms of like, you know, depicting the, the sort of underside of, of the mystery. There's the mystery and then there's the mystery within the mystery. Um, but I think there's also a way in which, you know, this, the genre lends itself to exploding even that framework where it's it becomes less about uh less about sides and more about sort of individual agency within that it's like so easy rollins is this figure who who and essentially stakes out a whole new career through this sort of this embattled uh world where you know black and white is in constant uh in constant conflict but also in constant flux um and he's you know, the reference to him, you know, coming back on the GI Bill, there's this, there's a sense in which he is, uh, he's essentially come home from being in the army and he, he turns himself into this sort of like self-made uh, spy uh, in terms of, you know, the way that he is, he's sort of figuring out how to navigate and play both sides. And, and you see that a lot with, um, you know, just the, the set decoration and the way things change. Um, the Oh, yeah. Go ahead, Karan. Well, I was just, I'm thinking of the, where he, um, <laughs> he kind of turns into Superman, so to speak. Yes. He don, he dons the suit. I was just about he to dons say that. the suit. 
and then uh, he goes from Clark Kent where he's just he has no agency and he's like well you know, if I'm going to get into this, like he says uh, in, the, in the film, if I'm going to get into it, I'm going to get into it at the top. If I'm going to be mixed up, I'm be mixed up at the, the top, top level. Mm-hmm. Right. So he turns into Superman. And yeah, and from that go- point going forward, I mean, obviously he's, you know, he, he's a, well aware he's a mortal man. Right. Um, uh, but he realizes that he has a little bit more agency or he desires to have a little instead of kind of falling back and letting things sort of happen to him which is would be understandable in the situation right he decides to like okay well look if i'm gonna die if, if something's gonna happen to me i'm just i'm gonna go out in a, go in a blazer i'm gonna go out swinging i'm gonna go on more this nice suit and take this white man's money i'm gonna buy myself a nice suit uh-huh. and i'm gonna get out here and do the thing you know so and I'm gonna get it to the highest level. I'm gonna talk above this guy. Well, obviously, come to find out, he's working for the you know the other uh, candidate. But right. you know, he's going to the the top guy to, to try to figure out what the what the real is. Um, and so that gave him a lot of you know to, for me that the kind of seeing that 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 it wasn't even a subtle change too. They didn't make it subtle. They made it like it was pretty definitive, which I found very yeah. interesting. Where Franklin didn't sort of like m- kind of move him into it like he didn't uh-huh. he just kind of was he was that guy he was like no i'm not gonna be that guy anymore i'm gonna be this guy absolutely so yeah. you knew that that was already in him already so it wasn't like a thing that needed to be built up mm-hmm. this is already uh, you know there. his character easy was already uh, well it's already mentioned you know because he's with mouse before he comes mm-hmm. down that so there's a hard-boiled quality already there to him right it just need, needed to be unleashed in some way Right. So with his back against the wall, he's like, okay, now I'm going to be this other guy that I know that I already am that maybe these people don't know. And I, I think that pivotal moment, the first time we see him express anger, it's when he feels violated by right. them breaking into his house. Yep. So that's, that's his, that's his per- seems to be his personal line. It's like, this is my house. This is my threshold. You came in here without permission. So I'm not going to be that, that dude to steal on anymore. Um, and I work for this, you know, I'm, as you're white people and you came into my house right. that I yeah. work for this, like, I'm not going to have you sort of, no, I, I have to fight, you know, you come into my house, you're, you're drinking up my liquor. Mm-hmm. You're telling me my liquor's cheap. Yeah. First okay, of all. Hey, you're going, <laughs> you know, you're going to tell me my shit's cheap, you know? So, you know, it was that kind of a thing. So I, I really, I like that part where they just kind of went ahead and just thrust them forward into this other um, sort of, turned on part of his yeah of who yeah. he is i like the line that he used uh as he's pulling up to 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 the carter institute or whatever it was called mm-hmm. he's like everybody's pissing on my head and calling it rain yeah you know yeah, yeah, and yeah. just kind of like and then he and then he gets out the car and he's got the suit on and he's mm-hmm. got you know it's i mean like just an aside on denzel denzel has the best walk unreal of any actor it's unreal right? probably of any person that that's the so first time you see like, that denzel walk too yeah when he when he when he gets out and he's and he's rolling up and it's just kind of like okay like we're dealing with another guy now you know and and just like and just like how we talked to everybody for the rest of the movie too like how he was taking those little bits that he knew and it was less like oh i'm just i'm just doing a job here i'm just right. i'm just asking about so and so um it, it became more like let me give him this little bit and let me see what they give me in return he, he was mm-hmm. playing cat and mouse at that point um, and then it's funny because it's, you know, his homie's name, Mouse, and then he comes out. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Don Cheadle, man. Like, oh, I, uh, John Cheadle oh, so good. I love that character. Oh, I love his so character. Good. That was, it, like, that's such a good thing. One of the great things about this film is just like, not just Don Cheadle's breakout performance, but Denzel, this is a film, this 
might even arguably Denzel. This is the first Denzel's first lead in a genre film, I want to say, um, from that era. And it it's it kind of establishes him. It's like a precursor for what he's he's kind of turned into like a late life action star in a lot of ways. Um, and I think there's there's so much here about his performance. I think he there's a way in which his performance sort of subtly turns on its head this idea of the hardball detective. It's like there's this there's this noir trope of this unflappable um, sort of figure who can walk into anywhere. And you know, Easy Rollins has this sort of likability that allows him to communicate with a lot of different people. But he shows fear throughout the film. There are a lot of ways in which you see it on Denzel's face. Like I might die. I might be a little over my head. He doesn't. He doesn't get consumed by it, but he there are moments of vulnerability that he shows that are that are atypical for the genre. Um, I mean, he obviously looks great in the suit. Shout out to uh, Sharon Davis, uh, black woman who did the. She originally was an actress, I think, but she did the costume design. She was. Uh, she also. She was nominated later on for uh, Dream Girls. She also did the costume design for Ray, Magnificent Seven, Fences. So she's dressed Denzel a lot, basically, um, mm. and no one looks no one looks that good in a suit except for them uh, he, he looks incredible just, uh sorry to interrupt no, one uh, just to, just since we're talking about the the look of the film like um i feel like like uh all of the details in this one like if he like as he really pivots and turns hard into, into noir for this film like he gets all the details right from the typeface that they use for the credits um he uses the archibald the archibald motley painting uh bronzeville mm -hmm. at the beginning of the film uh, uh donated by bill cosby by the way um, oh, wow. but just um, oh, like okay. the the music um the just all of all of those details like and specifically zeroing in like we talked about earlier on that that kind of black renaissance in la you know mm -hmm. like the central avenue the central avenue joints like all of it just like he really zeroes in and um, it, was, it, it just felt like it was, I really thoroughly enjoyed watching this movie. I, I worked at a movie theater when I was in high school when this movie was out and I, oh, and I didn't wow. get a chance to see it when it was out. Um, so it was, uh, it was one of these ones that's always just been sitting there. So uh, I was, I was, I was really, I was pleasantly surprised by it, but just like, I really appreciated the attention to detail. Like just the, it, it feels like an art project because so many little things he, he just nails that are like perfect for the time, but also yeah. just in creating the whole feel of the movie. Absolutely, and I think you know everything down from the from the art decoration, uh, the art direction to the the cinematography. Um, Tak Fujimoto did the did yeah. the cinematography. He's from California, uh, but he's of Japanese de descent. He was actually he was born in 1939, so he was actually interned in one of the relocation centers um, growing up. But he's he's the one who shot Badlands by Terrence Malick. He was on the second unit for Star Wars. He shot a lot of Jonathan Dem films uh, in the 90s, uh, particularly Philadelphia and uh, what's the crime one? Silence of the Lambs. Um, so he's put in work. And I, I think that the cinematography in this film is gorgeous. Um, and he seems to have a particular knack for, for, the, for the genre in terms of just the uh, achieving a certain seediness and smokiness, but also just like, there's a ton of natural light compared to, to the typical noir film. And I think that goes along with his understanding of what makes California so unique. Um, there's this almost like, you know, noir is known for this sort of like eternal night, whereas, but it's right. the way he shoots California, it's like eternal day. Eternal, eternal dust. day. Yeah, eternal yeah. day, which in a lot of ways is scarier because um, there's this sort of like crime in broad daylight that is just so unabashed about it. And I, I think the cinematography is really beautiful. and 
as you were talking about, I think is again, it's a film that's been on my back burner. It's a film after having watched it, it was like, I, and this gets to the heart of why I wanted to do black is not a genre. It's like, what, you know, what is it that is keeping certain black films from becoming classics in a particular genre? How did this movie do so poorly at the box office? I think it was made for 27 mil. It only made 17. Um, and it's, if everything about the film from the director to the, um, the subject, the, the novel material to the star is tailor made for a franchise and it just didn't happen. So like, what is, what is it about this film that, you know, whereas his, his first film got all the attention, uh, all the critical attention, I think it was nominated for a film festival award in, in Berlin. Um, what is it about this? And I saw someone tweet this out too, who had just recently watched it and is like, why did this film fail so badly? And, you know, well, there's a short answer, but I don't know what the longer answer is. What are you saying, Brent? The, the the short answer is is that uh, you know the, the 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 director wasn't as lauded as some of the other. Obviously, Denzel Washington at that point was a a bankable right. star, right? Mm -hmm. Because he had already done Malcolm X. He'd already been nominated and won Academy Awards. He'd already starred in movies. He was right. in uh, Philadelphia at that point, so he was already obviously a a big powerful star a name for sure, right? Yeah. So, I mean, he wasn't like, he wasn't quite, you know. He's not Denzel yet. Denzel, Denzel. But he was still Denzel. Denzel. Yeah, yeah. Denzel, Denzel. Washington. He's right. You know, if, oh, it's Denzel. Oh, it's his name, but he's Denzel. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, but the thing about it is, you know, and I thought about that because I went and looked at Wikipedia and I was like, that's, I'm glad I remember the, that tab. But I think part of the situation also is that there were movies that had come out mm -hmm. that just sort of, um, it's tough. Look, like Clockers came out like two weeks before that. Oof, that's rough. Uh, um, us the Usual Suspects had come out on the week, like the week or two before. Mm -hmm. Seven had come out the week before. That's right. That's the other one. Seven. Yeah. Okay. And then you know, so now you you know you're you're basically you're you're asking Denzel to carry this movie. Mm -hmm. You know, and then after immediately after that, the week after Dead Presidents came out. You know, so it's like all these, you know, a kicking and screaming, you know, so uh, assassins like these kind of big movies mm -hmm. um, that had come out, uh, bigger, critically acclaimed films as well. Right. Like you have a, you're, it's going to be, you know, as much as I, I, I dig Franklin's work generally, because I liked Out of Time, which came later. Out of Time was good. Um, David Fincher is kind of hard to overcome. No, I Ryan Singer's kind of hard to overcome. Like the 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 yeah. scale of their movies, well, particularly Seven, not so much the Usual budget. Suspects. Right, right. The Usual Suspects wasn't some like big blockbuster movie by yeah, any means. It was a slow. It was a slow burner. It, it was right, you know. But Seven, by for sure. I mean, that sucked up so much. If it, it was like in a vacuum, you know, it sucked up so much air, so much of the air that was there because of just the the the, the wildness of the movie. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that you know. It's hard to say now in 2020 how, why that was, but I just look at the films that had come out at that time, and I'm kind of yeah. like, well, how much air did it really have to breathe for the fire to grow? Well, right. I remember, so, go ahead. Like, so I worked at a, I worked at a theater, like, you know, I, thought, I think that was like the summer, the summer into the fall between my junior uh, and senior years of high school. And I remember, um, like, Panther had come out that summer. 
And, you know, so, so Phoenix is one of those cities that just has a ton of multiplexes because it's just, it's a hundred fucking degrees in the summer. Uh, sorry, sorry if I'm not supposed to swear on no, this, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hundred degrees in the summertime. So there's multiplexes everywhere, air right. conditioned entertainment. So like, like movies are, are a big deal out there, but our, our theater, like we were showing Panther, but like, I don't know how many other theaters in the Valley were showing that movie. Like, right. You know, it's like black movies would get, would, could get a wide release, but like, you know, it's not like Batman Forever came out that same summer. That was in every single multiplex, every single you know, theater. except Multiple for, screens. except for the ones that were, cause like the theater chain that I worked for was a local one at the time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's gone somewhat national now, but like, um, you know, Batman would be everywhere except for the art house ones, right? There was mm-hmm. like an art house one, like we were considered one of the art house ones. And then we had an art house one in Scottsdale and everywhere else was, was just like, yo, know, we're, we're just, we're stacking them up according to, you know, whatever, whatever priority they're, they're giving these movies. But like, but for a, a black film to go wide to be in every single multiplex, it was rare. It, it no, was super rare. Right. I mean, I think, and I, I think you're both making great points. I think, but you know, I, to Karan's point too, like, I do think there's a few things going on. So there's like, a, there's a crime thriller, like neo-noir of the 90s hitting its peak. So it's real. there's a glut of films like that. So it's really easy to get lost, particularly when you're a black film. But, you know, even comparing to a guy like David Fincher, like their careers in terms of just the pure chronology are very similar. It's just, there's a, yeah. there's a di- the difference seems to be in the platform. So like 1992 debut film, Carl Fringen was was one false move. Pretty small, like I said, headed straight to video. David Fincher's debut film in 1992 was Alien 3. So yeah. this dude hadn't made a full film by himself. Right. It's a giant franchise as his yep. first play toy. And that sets him up. And then 1995, the same year, like you just said, that uh, Devil in Blue Dress comes out. He comes out with Seven. So there is this, there is this sort of like platforming that's going on. And, and there's a... It, we see it a lot in different films. We talked a, bit, a little bit about it in terms of uh, when we talked about romantic comedies last week where, you know, black romantic comedies benefited from a glut of across the industry of rom-coms um, and then were subsequently slowly dumped as that genre be- either became less profitable or there wasn't as much money. And you sort of see that become what happened with the thrillers in the 90s, whereas, right. you know, the thrillers eventually get overtaken by big uh, comic book blockbusters. And so as those drop, drop so, do, so do opportunities for black filmmakers, it's just more drastic. Um, but what were, you, what were you gonna say? Oh, the other thing too, I'm looking, again, I'm going back to the movies that had come yeah, out. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> um, obviously it was an awful movie, but Showgirls <laughs> had come out the week before. Like, oh, so, that, so, was a, so, that was a really popular, awful movie, though. Right, exactly, right? So, you know, it was kind of, I mean, it was caught. awful. It but was just, awful. But just I mean, nobody saw it. No, don't be getting wrong. It was $37 million. So not, not a lot of people saw the movie. It was just, like, so awful. But it was, again, it, it takes up so much. It takes up space much. in the zeitgeist. You yeah. know, it's but not that, like the, the, what we have now, where it seems like it's like an unlimited amount of... But look at how many movies that Joe Esterhaus and Paul Verhoeven, exactly. like how many bad mm-hmm. movies they've made and exactly. they get a chance to keep failing Absolutely. over and over and over again. You know what I mean? It's like, you can put to, like, like Devil in a Blue Dress is a masterfully put together movie. It really right? is. And you get one shot. You know? <laughs> yeah. but, right. like, but like, but now, you know, if, if you were to, if you, if you were to drop the same movie, like, hey, we made this noir film and we dropped it on Netflix. 
You know what I mean? It's like, like just the, the opportunity in the audience is just so different now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, there's so many, like, just, especially if you were into independent film in the nineties, in cause it just seemed like, especially after Tarantino hit and like people just started looking everywhere for, for more indie films. It was, you know, you could, you would see these movies, but it would be no different than like listening to an indie band. Like, have you seen this? Have you, have you heard this band? Have you seen this movie? You know, that same type of thing. And it's just like, you know, how how good is how good is word of mouth going to be for for a film? You know, it's like right. a film needs they need butts and seats. You know, <laughs> like yeah. you know having having ten people in the audience isn't going to be enough. They need they need they need more. You know, so yeah, I, I just think that the 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 theater the having to show your movie in a the theater back in the day was was rough. You know, and Brutal. then by the time you get out on on VHS and DVD, you know, you're competing against every movie. You know, so it's like to become a, a real cult classic is is, is tough. You know. No, I mean, I think that's the thing that I always, I'm always hammering in terms of, you know, opportunity when it comes to directors and legacy is so much a game of volume. You see the number of films that, you know, these icons of cinema have gotten to make. And what happens is the the more films you get to make, the more people ignore the bad ones. So there's this, you know, you look at Franklin, who's, he's made maybe like eight or nine movies. And then He's, and then he started doing a ton of TV work, which is good, it's good work, but it's, it's, it's different when it comes to your legacy as a filmmaker. You see the number of films people like Scorsese and Coppola have been able to make over their careers, or even, um, I don't know, who was the other guy besides Fincher that you mentioned, I forgot, but just the, just the sheer volume is, is so key and it's, it represents so much of the gap between uh, black film and what's considered canon and who gets to be a part of these genre conversations, particularly in terms of genre film, because genre is, you know, genre becomes genre over repetition. So what, what does it mean when these, when someone who I consider uh, like a brilliant savant of the, of the thriller genre, even though he might not even think that it's his thing, Carl Franken, what does that mean when he's only been able to make like four, four films in the genre or maybe three, I think even including uh, at a time. Uh, so it goes a long way towards determining someone's uh, someone's legacy, and more importantly, I think their the value of their contribution to the genre in terms of pushing it along, um, in terms of you know reinventing certain things about it. Um, so I think you know I think Devil in a Blue Dress is in some ways this wolf in sheep's clothing, where it leans so far into all of the the visual and thematic tropes of something so well worn that like the ways in which it's doing something slightly different are like, they're hard to, they're hard to notice sometimes. Um, but I do think they're there. Um, I, what did y'all think about, um, there were a few elements in the, um, in Devil, Devil Wears a Blue Dress. I, there's a, what was it that I was going to talk about next? Oh, the voiceover. What did y'all think about the way? I mean, obviously, there's a typical way in which it's just like this is the detective novel. What did you think about the way that it was uh, incorporated? Did it seem too stale to you, or did you, did you find it it became like a sort of useful convention throughout the film? Uh, I expect it in noir films. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like going just going back to Double Indemnity. I think we watched that in film school, and, and like that was uh, that just kind of set the kind of set the standard for me because like I just kind of expect it you know right. that uh that we're going to get this uh that we're we're either going to get a story within a story or we're going to get narration you know mm. it's like and and I and I yeah it's like you know detective novel it's just kind of like what 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 are you observing 
tell me what's mm-hmm. going on. Set the scene for me. Who are all these characters? Right. I, I, I just kind of expect it with this one. Um, I, I watched a film recently. Um, I watched the movie version of uh, A Handmaid's Tale. And oh. there's no narration until the final five minutes of the movie. And it was just like, why wasn't this here the whole time? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> help me out. I've seen that in a couple of films too, where it's just like all of a sudden there's narration. Wasn't there, I think there was a moment in, um, what's the other Denzel movie uh, with Russell Crowe? I don't know. What, oh, uh, Mer- Virtuosity? No, well, actually, good point. They've been in two movies together. But the other one, um, American, uh, American Gangster. American Gangster, where it's yeah. like, the film is it's one film and then all of a sudden russell crowe is narrating i'm just like what what just happened Which i don't the, like that movie but my central yeah that's my central issue with the movie yeah is that it's like three different movies in it's, one movie <laughs> and i i love i mean I, I love scott i love ridley scott um r.i.p tony scott who's some of my favorite denzel movies oh yeah tony scott tony scott has a trilogy with denzel that i think is amazing and i, I think the the apex of it is uh man on fire but i oh yeah i love i love his work with that and i think there's a lot of synergy between uh you know tony scott films with denzel versus carl franklin films with denzel like one is this sort of like you know cognac sipping just like vibe and the other one is just like we're we're gonna do some illicit drugs and go all night um with this with this sort of den this unleashed denzel um so i I love i love those 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 uh those those two two uh two anchors of, of Denzel's sort of thriller persona um but yeah I mean I think I do think Franklin does some interesting things um and he did he I think he he helped in the um yeah he wrote the screenplay so he this is an adaptation he did of Walter Mosley's and I, yeah. I there's some of the language he uses he he play he toys with this sort of like this this detective novel lingo and he 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 infuses it with you know some sort of some black colloquialisms, but he also kind of lets Denzel add the personality to it. I love the first line, the first voiceover line. I I love the way he introduced it. He says it's nineteen, it was nineteen forty-eight, and I needed a job, and or I needed money. I think he says I needed money, mm-hmm. um, and I there's such a succinct sentence, and it's so it's so universal to this idea of this it sets the tone for Denzel being this ordinary black man in that era where it's just like, I just lost my job. What am I going to do? And that's just like, it's such an essential taking off point for a character. And I think in lesser hands and in films dealing with, um, you know, more predominantly white character, it's, I think it would come off as more trite because it has, it has, it has more to do with this particular down on his luck character, which I think they would play it up. But in, in Devil in a Blue Dress, it's, more universal to the black experience at that time where it's everyone knew someone who was looking for a job and you know then the bartender who hooks him up with with um dewitt you're just like oh i heard you looking for a job so we got this so it's like it's this right. constant like i heard the narration always, i heard you looking for yeah i heard exactly i heard the voiceover <laughs> and uh, i'm here to help <laughs> it's this, everyone's well, even always before looking that. want ads go ahead but even before that when he was it's the indignation it's like his sort of like refusal to be disrespected too. Like when he yeah. asked, he, they show when he's getting fired, mm-hmm. he's like, no, he's like, you know, you're going to call me by my full name. Right. Not even fella. before that. He's like, yeah. you know, white guys will, they'll take off time when they can't pull a double shift or they're tired and you right. don't fire them. And he sort of, and you see him sort of 
And the guy has no response. So he sort of backs off that a little bit and he, and he appeals to the guy's humanity. But again, at the final stand, he's like, that's not my full name. Uh, right. And I, I love that part of it. And there's a, he plays, he, he toys with the narration in terms of like slipping in and out of it. There's uh, when he first, when he takes Daphne Monet to the house where they end up finding another dead body. Uh, what does he say? He says, um, she asked him if he was nervous. And instead of answering it, the response is the voiceover in his head. He's like, am I nervous? I'm a black man with a, with a white woman on the, yeah. on the, in a rich white neighborhood. Yeah. I'm not nervous. I'm stupid. Which I, I love <laughs> that point where it just slips in and out so easily where it's, it's uh, you know, easy talking to himself, but also answering the question. Um, I think there are little moments throughout where he, he kind of toys with the, with the aesthetic of the genre um he even at one point he flat out says i ain't no detective which i thought was hilarious i then it's this way in which he's not afraid to look at the camera and just talk directly into it with and he i think he does it in a way where it, it's not it's not it's not super self-conscious he's not he's not do he doesn't have these sort of like film school show off he flourishes but he is playful throughout the film um in his in his direction and uh, and in just allowing certain characters to be more comedic than others. Obviously, Don Cheadle as Mouse is the, is the best example of that. Is sort of just like this hit. Why you leave him with me if you didn't want him killed? It's probably the best line in the yeah. whole movie. Is like, why did you right. leave him with me? It, there's this sort of like affable, dangerous killer who, you know, there's this, it's, I love, what I love about his performance is he's, when he delivers that line about being killed, he seems more harmless than, that then in the other scene where he's literally sleepwalking with a gun and almost kills his friend like right. that's when he seems the most innocent the most menacing is when he's drunk and not even aware <laughs> of what he's doing um i love the way the way he toys with this sort of wild card character uh i don't know what we all about to he strangled him to death like, oh my God. like slow. You know, he's like, he's like, he's like, he's like, he's totally strangled in the death. Like, and we're just oh. kind of like, oh, yeah, 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 okay, you know, oh. like, ooh, yeah, wait, we, man, this guy, whoa. Yeah, whoa. he didn't want to make any noise by shooting him, so <laughs> he, he strangled him and then <laughs> saved Denzel. And then Denzel brings it home. He just does his sort of rumination over the body. You can tell just he has no lines in that scene. You can just right. tell he's like, I really didn't want this to happen. Mouse is my friend. I'm alive. I feel really bad about this. And then it, it segues later when he's sitting on the porch uh, with, with the older uh, man. With the yeah. older man. I can't remember his, his friend's name. Yeah. Yes. Od Odell question. is, is Odell. The, he's exactly. also in with he, the, that actor is with him in Malcolm X too. It's he's the he's the one who introduces him to Islam in prison. Exactly. That's right. Um, he's a, that's right. So so when they have that whole exchange about your friends, like I I thought about Malcolm X too because it was just that's like. A great point. Like the, it was like their their dynamic was is is the same as the first half of the movie, and it was mm. just kind of like you know it's like many many nothing without his friends, and it's just kind of like, yeah, yeah, you're probably right, <laughs> and that's what you know, Karan, you were talking about that at the beginning when we first started recording, just uh, you know the central element of these films for you is the moral ambiguity in the in the gray zone, and who your friends are are kind of everything in this whole world that inhabits, and it's a central tenet of thrillers, but particularly in this devil the devil in a blue dress world where it is literally all about who you know um it, and who you're allowed to know exactly that's mm -hmm. a good point too uh it's a life or death situation 
in a lot of ways. Yeah, the um, like one of the one of the things about noir films. I recently watched uh, an Orson Welles movie, um, mm-hmm. The Lady from Shanghai, mm-hmm. and um, is there's always this element of like the underworld, right? Where it's right. just kind of like there's this kind of like, in, in this one you see a lot of it is this like this kind of like. The, the the world in which white people just move around freely and then there's then the world in which black people can move around freely but like you know but being able to step into one almost requires like you know a guide or, or some assistance or whatever and right. so it's like you know just yeah how different these worlds are where it's just kind of like just even how surprising it was when he shows up at carter's office and it's just exactly kind of like, he's like you're not supposed to be here there's a black man here in the daytime, uh-huh. you know, it's like, it's, it's like, now literally the, the politics of the time are, you know, sundown towns, like places right. where you could not be if you were right. black after sundown. So, um, so this, the, just people kind of like moving in and out of these worlds and how, and how, how Daphne Monet could move in and out, but only certain people knew her and, you know, like even, even the folks who, who dealt with Frank Green, right. It's just kind of like, yeah, I got this liquor from Frank Green, but we don't talk about Frank Green. Exactly. You <laughs> that's, know, like, that's like a so, good montage. Like that. It's just kind of like, uh, mm-hmm. that, that kind of, that, that kind of underworld feel, uh, was just, it, it was something that was just really well done. Uh, I just, I, re- I really enjoyed it. No, I think that there's, and there's a way in which, particularly in that era where, you know, these, these sort of crime dramas, they lend them, they lend themselves to sort of uh, highlighting or dissecting elements of race because they take place in the underworld. The underworld, it was one of the few spaces in that time where uh, cross-cultural mingling happened because it was under the radar, because crime affiliations, you couldn't really afford to not deal with people of different races. If you were, if you were, on the, if you were working in the black market because there was just too much money to be made, um, there was, you know, it was a place where the cops were paid off to go, to look away. So there's, there are so many, uh, culture clashes and sort of, uh, blurring of racial lines and confrontations that happen specific that can happen in films like this specifically because they're about crime, uh, which I think is something that Franklin takes full advantage of. Um, what, uh, I, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to make mention of that, like in the first, when he, uh, when Easy goes to the first, goes to the club. Right. Right. And so, and, and the, the, the oh, woman, I forget line. her character. Uh-huh. Yeah. So she go and he's like, you know, there's a white man trying to get in there. Uh-huh. Right. And it's the first only place where that can conceivably happen in that time. Totally. Where a white man could be denied something, mm-hmm. you know, and she mm-hmm. den- not only did, it was it a black people it was a black woman denying this white man mm-hmm. something that he wanted right and it was you know only in that world in that time in that very particular situation could something like that happen absolutely right? there was this there's a certain amount of uh the underground was the only seems one of the only places other than the church really where black people were allowed to have that sort of sovereignty in terms right. of territory um, and it, there's a, and it's, <laughs> I love Denzel, uh, Easy's first, the first thing he says when he gets in is like, where are the white women at? And it's, <laughs> it's a, it's a joke. It's a callback, you know, in a lot the of ways, the yeah. blazing saddles, but it's also detective work because it's like, he's immediately declaring and, and like hiding in plain sight of like what he's really there to do is, is to find out who Daphne is. 
And he says it in this just like brilliantly timed joke. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, that's one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. Yeah, I, I wrote that one down too. I was like, we watched Blazing Saddles just like a couple of months ago. So oh, it's like nice. still fresh on the dome. And I was just like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Growing he, delivers up it, he delivers it like the exact same way. Yeah, you know, it's like. <laughs> <laughs> he's is in. He's almost like smiling at the camera. It's like. Uh, and I remember like I, I never really saw Blazing Saddles growing up. I don't even know if I've finished the whole thing, but I know that line and everyone knows that line. Um, I thought that was, <laughs> I thought that was a brilliant. <laughs> um, there was, uh, I guess I wanted to talk just a little bit, you know, we can wrap up soon about just the genre in particular. What, what are some, you know, either, you know, thematically black or black directed thrillers that sort of came to mind when you when we were thinking about the genre or that that are notable in, in y'all's sort of canon of favorites hmm. black thrillers um that's a good question I mean, later, you know, Dead Presidents. I mean, but it wasn't not, nothing in that, this kind of noir vein, not yeah, yeah. specifically. Um, you know, Dead Presidents, um, they came immediately to mind because it was around that same time. Right. Um, I think there was... Um, not a lot. I mean, yeah, I would, no, the, and yeah, I, I, would probably, I would probably put Boys in the Hood in that, in that category. Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting like like it's even because i know it's a coming of age film but like but just the just the the climax you know it's like because you essentially you're rooting for the characters to get out right and are even the menace to society in that in that same boat you know where it's like there's a coming of age element but there's also this like we want them to get out of the situation i mean like now the the situation of menace to society is, is a lot more tight because it's like he's he's essentially like fleeing a murder that he's a part of right, right? right. And, and, and ultimately he doesn't get away but like like those films they still have a thriller thrillerish element to me uh just given that there's like there's this rising opposition to them and it's like oh well it can get away from it no um, i mean i think that's that's it's funny because the first film i thought about when i was you know sort of developing this series uh was juice uh, so Ernest Dickerson, oh, uh, and I, and, uh, and just, and I, I, the reason like why it's funny. Cause like one of the whole conceits for this thing is it's like, so why, why do certain black films get lumped into black only characterizing and get left out of conversations when it comes to genre? Cause Ernest Dickerson is brilliant. I, I think, and juice to me is like a straight up noir thriller and Ernest oh, yeah, Dickerson for sure. even said as for much, sure. like he said, there's a good quote in an article about his film in uh, little white lies. Um, I originally saw Juice as a Don Siegel film noir, but I guess it evolved due to my horror uh, of how prevalent guns were becoming. Things became totally different to when I was growing up, a time where beef was settled by boxing it out. Suddenly, in the early 1990s, you could accidentally step on someone's sneakers and get shot. Me and Gerard uh, Brown, the screen, co-screenwriter, were terrified by what was happening. We wanted to put it on the big screen. So there's this sense in which Dickerson, I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of trite, like <laughs> sort of generational talk, but I also, there's this sense in where you see where his head is at and you see those tropes in the film where he was just this sort of North thriller. There's a smoking gun. There's someone, a James Cagney type character with uh, Tupac who becomes, who turns into this sort of. Uh, the character this, in the movie that they, they, they watch. Exactly. He becomes yeah. the character in the movie. I think that, what are they watching? White Heat or something? Yeah, I it? think so. Um, and yeah, the top of the world. And, and so I thought about 
Juice in, in that sense, in terms of, you know, genre discussions, because Juice is lumped in with the other, uh, quote, sort of homeboy movies of the 90s, whereas, you the know, classics, the classics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The, you know, the Singleton trilogy is more in a lot of ways, it, it fits more of the message, the message film vibe that people like mainly white audiences were looking for, sort of like the CNN of the hood. Um, you know, but even Menace to Society, I've, I've always felt that that film has more in common with a movie like Platoon than than like Juice in the sense of like it, you know, there's this sort of nihilistic uh, war film vibe to it, which is, which obviously is, has a lot of great synergy with, uh, with Dead Presidents, which is, which is grounded in the, in the black ex post-Vietnam experience. Um, one that comes to mind is uh, F. Gary Gray did The Negotiator. Yes. With, uh, yeah. with Samuel Jackson. And yeah. uh, F. Gary Gray is a great example. He is. Um, and and uh, Kevin Spacey, who I know he's on the outs, but still, that's a good movie. Yeah, um, no, that's it. Uh, and tra tra Antoine, Antoine Fuqua did Training, Training Day, Day, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, a lot of these are, there's going to be a lot of Denzel answers to this question. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I want to say, though, I want to say the part, I think part of the, the thing about Juice not necessarily being in that mm -hmm. is that I know all the people in Juice. Yeah, yeah. You know, and Juice is representative of an experience that I have as a black person that can't be transferred backward, like into something else, not, right? It's not, it's not like, compatible. right, exactly. I think that's part of the reason mm -hmm. for it because there's not a situation in, you know, you look at Chinatown, you know, you look, you look at these films, like yeah. these classic films, noir films and it's like these are just situations that white people would get themselves into <laughs> okay that's, that's the first thing they're right that's problems. the thing these are white mm. problems yeah yeah these are things white people would get themselves into black people would, would get themselves in something maybe similar but it, it's 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 just it's going to be fundamentally different mm -hmm. that's just my opinion it's gonna be fundamentally different juice is not applicable there's not a story like juice that i could find somewhere else juice mm. is juice because of the social and economic situation that they're all in together right. black and brown black it's like black and puerto rican dominican all yeah. you know people this meld of people together there's bs high school that they're going to that's not really educating them that well right they don't even show up they don't even show up and no i even yeah. misses them yeah. right that would not be something you know unless you you know you go into like backwoods of you know i don't know Kentucky or whatever nobody's right. nobody's thinking about school that. right so it's it's just fundamentally different I think there's someone getting want. a gun like right. Some, right. someone getting a gun in New York City is a big deal because you can't have handguns in New York City right exactly the, I think the only movie that's that's even comparable to that is uh that French film uh La Haine uh yeah. oh yeah yeah, like because the movies are almost definitely exactly watching the, the juice. Yeah, it's, yeah, 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 exactly. For sure. he, he said that all those movies were influences yeah. for him in making that, and it's like, and it, and it has a parallel storyline. But it's like, like you have you have the multiracial aspects of that movie, but even but even still, it's like they're all still living in these French ethnic ghettos, like just mm -hmm. on the on the outskirts of Paris. So it's like it's it's still the same thing. Um, one other movie that comes to mind is uh, the Spook Who Sat by the Door. That was also um, on my list that uh, I, I watched that movie when I was in college, but like, mm. it's, it still sticks to my head. I, I never I read the book, seen it. But, uh, but I think it's, I think the director is black. Uh, he is. He is. Uh, Dixon, yeah. Wait a minute, Graham, you haven't seen it? 
No, I haven't seen it yet. Oh my gosh! I know. Yeah, that's why I was. That's why I was on. That's why I was on this list. Um, yeah, we gotta do that. Uh, no, I mean, I think you make great points. I, both of you, I think there is a there is a particularity to this to the narrative where it's you know it's it can be transposed to hoods and other places, but it's still distinctly like that. And I, and I, for me, it's maybe even conversely like that's actually why it it's it merits inclusion into the general genre discussion because it's there's a certain i think particularly in genres it's like i, I think there are a lot of films particularly in sort of white majority films that actually get rewarded in terms of their hierarchy in the canon for their specificity and i don't yeah. think that happens with black films you know we see you see you know that long list i talked about with patterson he's like like sci-fi thrillers and and crime thrillers and, and Lord, you know, John Grisham is so rich because of his specific law right. jargon thrillers. Um, mm -hmm. And that you don't see that happen. You don't see franchises by black directors about, you know, film noirs that take place in the hood. And it's like, why, well, why is that? Well, we, we know why that is without speaking on right. it. But there's this right. way in which, you know, people, Hollywood is constantly talking about like, are these black stories universal enough? And and my answer to that is who cares like white films who that are super successful all the time aren't universal they're part of what makes them gives them their appeal is that they give audiences insights into these very insular worlds you know like movies about car racing no one knows all this stuff like no one days of thunder like people didn't see days of thunder right. because it's nascar is universal they saw days of thunder because like tom cruise is in it it looks cool and there's a bunch of jargon about cars that I didn't know. So there's this, there's this element where it's, you know, Hollywood loves to talk out of, out of both sides of its mouth in that sense. Um, and I think Juice, I think Juice is, a, is a really good example of that. Um, like you said, Antoine Fuqua has done a lot of great uh, thriller work. Um, he's directed Denzel uh, a number of times. Um, what do we say? He said, Spook that sits, the soup that sits by the door and, uh, there was another one that, I, oh, F, we're going back to F. Gary Gray. F. Gary Gray is really, I, I think he stands out in that he was able to parlay his work into, um, into sort of what we would call mainstream franchise work. So he got to, he directed Italian Job, yeah. he directed Fast and the Furious 8. Um, so he was, uh, in a sense, he was able to pull off you know, Spike Lee's trick with Inside Man and take it even further in terms of just like uh, being, you know, his, his blackness is, in, you know, I don't like to say it's, it's, uh, it's beside the point. It's never beside the point, but he's able to put himself in a sense where he is just a go-to director for a certain type of film and a particular type of film that has big budgets, which is really key. Um, I really love Steve McQueen's Widows. Love that movie. Um, and he's oh. an interesting... We talked about it last week too, where Steve McQueen has this, um, you know, he made really critically acclaimed films with uh, Fassbender with Shame and um, I forget the other one. Uh, the slave. Well, before that, there was another one with, with him, but then as we were saying, like it was almost intentional that he made 12 Years a Slave because there's this idea where like, how do you break as a black filmmaker and director, you make a movie about slavery. Um, and that sort of allowed him to make other films in a sense. Um, and I think, you know, some of his best work has been in this sort of genre film. I think there's, there's such a, 
like a very like visceral like conciseness about widows the fact and the fact that he makes these uh he brings out these women protagonists and there's is hunger the other film you're, you're hunger, thinking about? hunger that's yeah, exactly right and i don't remember which one came first but that's the one i haven't seen yeah so i i, I think there's there's a lot there's a lot there um and i, I think you know, one of the things I appreciate about Franklin is that he has this sort of sort of classical sense of pace. He's, you know, like I mentioned, I think he has this sort of patience in terms of like the way he divulges uh, information throughout his film, the way he sets up the characters, allows them to exist. There's not a lot of shouting. I, I don't, I've, for me, it's maybe it's personal preference. I feel like there's this sort of wave of like very sort of muscular thrillers. It's like the, I don't, you know, I don't want to get into it necessarily of like, being like too negative about certain directors but like there's this sort of like safety brothers effect where it's just like the whole point is to is to <laughs> send your stomach in knots for like two hours and like that's in like people shouting at each other for a long time and i know i'm oversimplifying it i don't think those films are without merit but i do think there is an element particularly in the genre of there's i do think there's something lost aesthetically um in in the way that these these films are being sort of funneled into the arena, but I also think there's, I also think there's just more space for different ways of interpreting this genre, and I feel like sometimes it gets closed off in in particular eras. What are you saying, Joe? Yeah, I um I, I think that the thing that comes to mind, uh, so you know we, one of the things that's come up a lot, like the word that that's that I think about a lot when we talk about movies, especially on the movie club nights, mm-hmm. is um how economically they use the time, right? It's like, yeah, yeah. like I've, as a, just as a person who watches a lot of movies, like someone who can make a 90 minute movie, like Love it. it's 90 minute, like, like uh, that other Denzel movie, Unstoppable. It's a 90 minute movie about <laughs> a runaway train. That is a perfect movie. It's, right? <laughs> it's just like, exactly, exactly. train gonna hit something. <laughs> yeah, 90 minutes to figure it out. Like that's, yeah, that is, out. that's to me, that's a perfect movie, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's just how, how do you use the time? And, and I feel like, um, just to kind of balance it with the Safdie brothers example, mm-hmm. like while I, I find their movies do are, are thrilling, it's that they're, they make movies for this age of the, of the, uh, of the short attention span. Right. So it's just like they economically just squish as many things to make you feel anxious as possible into that right. time. And that it, it's going to appeal to a certain taste right right but i the thing that i enjoyed about both of these films is that um for their for their runtime the pacing is so good right it's like in, in one false move we get the two parallel storylines and there, there's like you know you got half road movie half movie set and in, in half of the movie set in this small town half of the movies on the road like right. both are both are uh you know both could bore the shit out of you if, if you if you just took them on face value but when exactly. you put those two together you've got tension and it's like the tension that that builds in devil and blue dress between um between like well these guys are like he might go to jail and this guy wants him because he's paying him money and you're not sure who who's you know what where's the girl at you know it's just <laughs> yeah, all of these exactly. things are, they're, the they're all at? pulling at the same time and it's like like all of that time, you're just like, but what's happening with this? What's happening with this? Mm-hmm. It's like, what, as you're being told the story, you're still wondering about the other elements. And it's like, that's good filmmaking to me. It's it like, really is. There's still tons of space, tons of time to observe all these details in this, in this well-crafted film. And that's not easy to do. And I, I just think that, like, there's, for as many three-hour epic movies as there are, uh-huh. like, it's like, 
you gotta you gotta earn a three hour runtime. But you, I also think you gotta make the most. If you're gonna tell a story in hundred hundred minutes, like make the most of it. You know, like yeah. like give us give us tension. I don't I don't need I don't need bombastic. Just give give me tension. You know. No, and I'll take I'll take tension over uh, sort of you know indu like medically induced anxiety anytime in the day. It's like <laughs> I it's, and I. And you know the run. That's a really good point about the timing of it. The, the precision of the timing of this. It's it's literally starts with the with the uh, sort of um, the catal the catalytic action and ends with the denouement, like on the T, like stopwatch. Um, and you know editors don't get a ton of credit, but shout out. There's Carol Kravitz edited both of those films. Um, and the work, the editing work is brilliant. It's it just is. nothing wasted. And when you think about the fact that this was, these are both shot on film, like I, I can't cut a circle. Like I, I don't like, it's really impressive. I think the way that these are blended together, there's, again, there's not a lot of like, you know, visual histrionics. There's some, there's some nice transitions. Um, but the sound editing is really brilliant. The scene in One False Move, uh, where Fantasia finds the little black boy in the, the house where they've just murdered everyone. And he's, and it immediately cuts to um, Dale's daughter screaming for him in the middle of the night. Um, and it sets, it just, yeah. it's again, like, no wasted energy. There's no sort of like uh, exposition of like, how do, we, how do we go from there to, to Star City? It just takes you there and it's seamless. Uh, and I, I, I agree. I think that that's one of the best elements of both films is how uh, economical it is, but it, it's not breakneck. It gives you time. The amount of character development or at least, or at least revelations that you, that you have, particularly in One False Move, which essentially has no main character. There's just basically four or five floating people and like this ensemble thing that's not even self-consciously an ensemble film. Uh, the amount of, the amount of even... Dale's wife gets a scene, gets multiple scenes about how protective he is of, of, of her husband and talking about, it. it's like, he thinks you're a superhero. So maybe you should tone it down a little bit. Um, I thought, I thought that was really remarkable. Karan, do you have any thoughts about? Oh, no, that's those, the, the descriptions you, you both gave were, were great. Um, it does make me think, I want to go back just like a, a little bit. One, one thought that I did have though, um, about Juice and the reason why it doesn't get the same uh, Juice and 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 Boys in the Hood, uh, you know, make mention of you know these these films that don't get the same. It's the I it's the how should I say this without it sounding crazy? Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. There is in the hood in quote unquote hood movies. There's an expectation of death. Of course, there's an expectation of somebody <laughs> perishing because. Right there's an expectation at this is what happens mm -hmm. when black people get together and there's going to be a clash and people, black people are going to die. Right. Right. When, so there's more of a kind of a, this more of an, a kind of an unfortunate slice of life, weird slice of life, uh, sort of a fatalist slice of life thing that's happening yeah. in like juice and, and boys in the hood versus again, you go back to some of the, any of the other, um, so-called classic, you know, white films, like you're being transported somewhere that's exceptional. Right. Right. 
these things are exceptional. What's happening in Chinatown is exceptional. That is not a regular thing. Right, right, right. You know, so I think that's the other part of it too. Um, and that it, it's because it's too close to our actual mm-hmm. lives and in, in where we're from and the places that we're from uh, and the socioeconomic environments that we, we're having to get, reach out, try to get, crawl out of that are being shown in these films. They don't get that same thing. There's not that, that same thing is not happening um, versus the other. Cause there's, you know, and that, that's the, that's the, the issue there though, is that it's because not enough of black life is shown absolutely on film. Right. Yeah. So it's there's, only that thing that they're showing. They're not showing the, 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 the broadness of all of our, all of our blackness, not right. just the, what's going on in, in the inner city, but what's going on in the suburb, what's going on over here, what's going on Literally when we're everywhere. at the work and, you know, so on and so forth. So that's a great point. Um, in, in some of my rewatching of uh, Bastards of the Party the other day, um, there was a point about, about black movies. And so they, they, they tell the story of like, of the work of the Black Panthers in LA, right? And they're mm-hmm. showing you like, like actual footage like that folks had recorded, like home videos and all this stuff, and like little bits of the speeches and folks now who are still alive from those times telling these stories. But they talked about like this idea of community from the 60s transitioning into the end of the me decade, the 70s. And they talked about when movies like Superfly came out. And Superfly oh. is a, you know, that's a, that's a thriller, right? Mm-hmm. But like, you know, just that whole idea of this guy like getting out the game, you know, and he wins. And, and so, you know, the filmmaker asked like these guys who had grown up in that time and who had survived, who had survived the wars. It's just kind of like, you know, what, what did you guys think of movies like that? It's just like, you know, how did you think that that impacted the community? It's just like, there's a lot of guys in Compton Cemetery who thought that they could live that life. Yeah. And it, and so, yeah, but it's like, we, we end up with these, these spaces of like, you know, we're showing these superhero, essentially superhero criminals, or we're showing like, like folks who are trying to get out, but yeah. don't, right? But it's like, but there's all this other space in between that we don't, that we don't really see because it's like, there's not a, it doesn't lend itself well to, you know, to these filmatic stories, right? It's just yeah. kind of like, here's the story of the black nerd who invented this thing. It's just <laughs> like, you can make a movie about the guy who invented the super soaker if you wanted to, you right? But to. it's just kind of like, um, they made that movie about the white lady that invented a special kind of hanger. Like, come on. I, it's like, I no, I think y'all are both getting at great points. And I, you know, there is, there's the dearth of, of variety. I think there's also something that I talk about all the time is there's a, for black storytellers, there is the, the license to fantasy that we're not necessarily allowed because, because there's this wider white idea of black life that is you know it's grounded in this narrative that they already they think they already know there's right. this you know you see a lot like Quran, you write about music a lot there's this sort of artistic license that like hip-hop artists don't necessarily get it's it's you know hip-hop artists are often stuck in this sort of like again like cnn of the ghetto thing where it's like everything that they say has to be true and, and ripped out of their entire lives or else they're they lack credibility and that's for that's for white critics too or even majority for white critics where there's this, you know, why doesn't, why doesn't a rapper get to tell a story from someone else's perspective? Every other songwriter gets to do that. Um, and, you know, and I think that has, you know, in film that has particular implications on, you know, thrillers where it's like, you know, how, how are black people allowed to make thrillers with all the twists and turns that are known for the genre when the audience 
already feels like they know what's going to happen because the characters are black. Like how, how, like that's already a hostile environment for a filmmaker to put his, his film out in there when the, when the audience thinks they know everything just by the color of, of the actors involved. And so there's a, you know, that gets at the point where like, you know, even in the sense where like, you know, these movies, even if you were to talk about these movies as like their own genre of like, boy, like boys in the hood as a genre, why, why aren't those films still getting to get made by like virtuosity? Like how many films does Scorsese get to make about Italian American gangsters and still get three hours, oh, four man. hours on Netflix? It's like, there's Bro. this sense where it's like, <laughs> it's constantly like, even if you wanted to typecast us, we don't get to make money off of our own typecasting because there's a sort of like been there, seen that idea where it's like, we did that already in the nineties. We're, we're over it. Well, it's just like, but no one's, no one's over, you know, mean streets part 11. So it's, there's yeah, I, part I, of, I was curious why we didn't get, um, an easy Rollins franchise. I'm right? like, so devastated by the fact like that I, I thought that it. this was. I thought we could have gotten a good three or four movies of this uh, from Denzel. Absolutely. Like, like I felt it's like everything run. is set up for this to just. I, I I like these types of stories. I like I like noir as a genre. Like this is this was teed up. Absolutely. Right? But then you know, like you guys you guys already mentioned the box office numbers. It was just kind of like you know if this if this were Netflix, right? Oh my it's god. Like, like hey, we've got. These books are already bestsellers. Mm -hmm. We got a bankable star. We got we got all the talent in place to make something that's stylish, visually visually appealing. We can churn these things out. You know what I mean? Like I just feel like this is one of those like, it's funny. It's a period piece that's like <laughs> that was ahead of its time. You know? Yes, but, exactly. No, that's a but great. It, but point. I feel like if you if you came to one of the to one of these streaming platforms with this package now, look. We've got we got a bankable Oscar winning star. We got, you know what I mean? Like all of that is just kind of like oh yeah, this is happening. Well, you know? and it's, if you juxtapose that with the Alex Cross movies, we see that it's, that there is interest in detective novels led by black, by a black actor. But the difference seems to be the fact that James Patterson is a white author. The difference seems to be that the film, that the filmmakers in these, in these genres are white. So there's this, uh, I think it was, was it Gary Fletter? Yeah, he did, he did a few of them. But so, you know, there's this sense in which there is, there's both this idea of, well, we see what could possibly work. And then there's the idea of, of, you know, certain genres and certain franchises are successful as self-fulfilling prophecies. You know, we, we, we've been around long enough to know the game where it's like, there is, there, for black filmmakers, there seems to be, there are a few moments where we force Hollywood's hand, where a movie like Black Panther is so successful. And it's even then had the help of Disney that, Hollywood has no choice now. But for the most part, Hollywood decides what's popular. And it's sort of, it, it has this, this unique tendency and ability to tell the audience what they want to see. Um, and that's rarely films by black people. Yeah, the, 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 gatekeep, the gatekeeping is strong. <laughs> <laughs> Very. It is Very. extremely strong. Um, I don't want to keep y'all too long. What, any any closing things about the genre or the film or uh any last thoughts um i i just just for me i i really uh, I, thanks for the opportunity to be a part of this um of course. like uh well, one of these films like i said was on was on my list to watch and so i'm glad that i got this the second chance at it um after switching to, to queen and slim for, for our genre study but um the uh 
Devil in a Blue Dress was was definitely uh, one of my faves of the year. One of my fav first watches, even though it's 25 years later. Uh, I, I was really happy, really happened to to take that in. But yeah, I, I think that um, uh, it's I think it's worthwhile to to do the do the unearthing of some of these some of these hidden gems. You right. Know? Um, just just to just for the context of because uh, like the, both of these movies said a lot about all the things that we're talking about now now that now that folks want to talk about racial consciousness so much mm-hmm. like a lot of these films are saying this stuff back when I was in high school right right and right. and there was so much I could have gotten out of seeing films like this when I was all about watching everything that Tarantino and, and Kevin Smith and those guys were, were spitting out back then I would have benefited so much from seeing movies like this when I was that age. So um, I think unearthing these things for folks uh, who would benefit from seeing these types of stories now um, is important. So um, if, if this podcast helps do that, then, then that's fantastic. No, that's great. I, I appreciate you uh, contributing this way. I think uh, that's, I mean, that's exactly why I wanted to, to do this, I think. And, you know, I'm a, when it comes to film program, I'm pretty selfish. So I tend to put things on it that I want to see. <laughs> but I think also, I think, it, like you said, I think it's important to, I think it's important, particularly in this age where we can, you know, we have so much access compared to when we were younger. I think it's important to, to unearth films that are of the same quality as, as the ones that were being pushed towards us, but have been left in the shadows. And like you said, I, I would have loved to see this film when it came out when I was a kid. Part of it was because I was young and my parents wouldn't have let me see it. But other than that, I think, you know, I think about that a lot in terms of, you know, series like this and other, other you know, film screenings and festivals or black films where it's like I'm con- like in the back of my mind is always like who are the young people that really need to see this who are these who are these people who th- this could spark something in in terms of you know because part of you know part of creating new generations of black filmmakers is literally just making sure they can see as many movies as possible and that includes films by black people so yeah I everything you said I I, I appreciate and and agree with um Karan Karan do you have any oh, I agree any 100% 100% I agree 100% with 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 both of you were saying um yeah as somebody who when I went to initially when I went to school um I wanted to you know I wanted to make film so mm-hmm. you know I, well let me say it like this I did see a lot of these films because you know very fortunately for me I had like you know <laughs> my mother allowed us to watch certain things that maybe yeah, we weren't yeah, really yeah. able to you know so <laughs> I watched it when they came out I watched Malcolm X I watched all these these movies you know I was already you know I'd already um read Pimp you know I'd already mm-hmm. read these things and and understood these mess all the the messaging and, and things like that but um you know to come back to it again man that was that was, that was this was a real treat um it's very interesting to 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 see uh, this version of Denzel that's kind of on his way. Yeah, he, yeah, I mean, he was well on his way. I mean, he'd already, like I said, he'd already done Michael Max and all these films that had already come out. But you know, just to see him like in in this glory is, um, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, is it was a was definitely a treat. Um, uh, the 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 only thing that uh, the, the I'll, I'm gonna think about going forward is whatever happened to the uh, the Cinder Williams's career. Yeah, um, I don't to know. Me, for yeah. me, that's that's the that's the thing that I, I think about of the two movies mm-hmm. is her career because I'm like, 
why didn't she i know the obvious answer why she didn't become like a bigger star or anything like that but i've always it was very curious of just uh, you know what happened to her and just how she didn't you know she wasn't just larger than what she really it seems like she deserved to be in my opinion no uh, i i agree no I, I thought the same thing yeah because she's brilliant in that film and she plays it with this sort of like this there's a sort of youthfulness there's also this this way of which she can she has this switch where she has she plays a sort of like um sort of innocent country girl but she's also incredibly savvy and has this way of subtly standing up for herself and asserting herself in a world where they could they could literally just get you beat up or killed as a woman in that in that in that in that vein or that zone um I, yeah she's brilliant and she was really she's brilliant in Mo Better Blues I mean you know people some sometimes careers tail off just because people want them to I mean she did a she did a spate of of uh, a smaller films in subsequent years I think she might be on a new Netflix show now um so and then she did she was also in um Tales of the City that mini series yeah uh she was in that uh, shortly after this and, and she was in a few other television things. Um, but as far as I know, she's still, she's still active, but I think she might've taken some breaks here and there. Uh, but she really does. Uh, she's the closest thing that film has to a central protagonist and she carries it really well. Um, so yeah, I love her in that film. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate you guys taking the time to chat. I think this is good. This is exactly what I wanted out of the conversation, just to kind of, you know, I think particularly with this genre, there's so much, uh, there's so much, I wanted to kind of lead, we're just talking about the, the craft of the films and the genre. And I think that leads us in naturally into ideas of what that means for, for black film. And I think it's a, it's a, I think it's a really cool sort of, element about you know thrillers in general which is like some of my favorite films anyway so um before we go are there any is there anything you guys want to plug any socials you want to give out where people can find your find your work uh karan i know you have some you main pipelines where you showcase yeah. your writing yeah austin chronicle um that that will probably be the, the main thing i have some uh, one very large piece coming out fairly, well, we'll say reasonably soon. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, so I'm still in the in the process of writing that, and that, you know, that could get me booted out of this town. We'll see how that goes. Ooh, um, I'm excited. So there's that. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but we're we're gonna get that, and I can be found at Karan Spearman, K-A-H-R-O-N, S-P-E-A-R-M-A-N, all the at Karan Spearman. At wherever so yeah beautiful yeah if you haven't read Quran's work for the chronicle you are missing out big time so go go google it um thanks again for coming uh gerald any any promo um, any um i'm i'm working on stuff right now um working on a video game but that's 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 gonna take a while but um but yeah as far as like writing about film i mostly do that on letterboxd okay. um i'm easy easy to find on the internet if you spell my name right um i'm at gerald on there i'm at gerald on twitter at gerald spell, on spell your name on one more time because i've misspelled it multiple times j-e-a-r-o-l-d got you and is that um, how you is that how we would find you on letterboxd yeah i think Excellent. it's like 
I think on that one, I think I had to throw an underscore at the end uh, cool. to get my username because uh, I think it was like eight characters. But, but yeah, I'm 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 easy to find online. But yeah, that's uh, I'm using the other social media less just because you know I'm, I'm tired of all that. <laughs> but, <laughs> sure. but, uh, but yeah, but like, but as far as writing about movies, I'm, I do most of it on there. Okay. And we have our we have our uh, a list of films that we're watching each year, all that stuff on there too. So. Um, yeah, I have dipped in and out of Gerald's film series for, <laughs> for some delinquent reasons, some legitimate work reasons, but uh, the felt the films that they, that y'all pick are always great and brilliant. A lot of stuff I haven't seen or even heard of. It's really cool. And I keep getting recommended letterbox like over and over again. And I think I should start an account because I feel like some people are doing a lot of cool stuff on it. And uh, actually uh, Jenny who's a part of uh, hyper real film club, our, uh, our sponsor plug plug, um she she recently was recommending letterbox uh she said it's really cool so i'm gonna have to check that out um again thank you for joining us um black is not a genre um this will close week four we might be back like next month though so keep an ear out um and you should be you should be hearing this on friday uh thanks again take care all right thanks all right